Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of September 28th, 2021. Another big week in DC, about 14, 15 books to, uh, to chat about. Pretty solid week. Uh, we're getting toward the end of a couple of these minis. We're getting to uh, the, the nitty-gritty in action comics of Superman leaving Earth. Uh, still don't know what's going on in Justice League or Checkmate, so that's kind of par for the course there. But uh, overall, a pretty <laughs> solid week. What would you think, Rocky? Yeah, I think it's a pretty solid week, too. A, a, a good number of things to kind of get excited about, whet my appetite a bit for what's coming forward. Couple of uh, stinkers, I think, but uh, overall, what I like about this week is that there's always something to talk about, and even the ones that are are annoying me a little bit, it, it's 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 there's something about sometimes even when I'm annoyed by a storyline, it does nonetheless intrigue me. So DC Comics continues to have me, uh, you know, I'm always along for the ride, even if uh, some of the rides aren't that comfortable. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a great way to put it. Uh, well, we're gonna we're gonna dive right in, starting with Icon and Rocket, season one, number three. Now, for whatever reason, in the uh, in the preview copy that they sent us, there's no credits page. Usually, in these uh, in these milestone books at the uh, back of the book, there's a page that's dedicate dedicated to the credits, but we don't we don't have that here. So. I mean, we know that it's written by Reginald Hunland. It's been written by him the entire time. Um, Doug Braithwaite does the art. Andrew Curry is usually on the inks, and Brad Anderson does the colors. I, I can't credit the letterer because, again, I don't have a credit space. And also there's somebody named Leon Chills who is credited uh, on, on the front cover. So I, I don't yeah. know, based on the order, did, did he help? I mean, he's listed second, so did he help write it with Reginald Hudland? I He didn't, I don't think, ha handled the majority of the artwork because the majority of the artwork looks like it's Doug Braithwaite. So you would think that Braithwaite would be listed first as a contributing artist. So I think Chills must have helped co-write it. But again, I, I can't really say for sure. I yeah. did enjoy this issue a lot. Now, I will say that it's, it's pretty dialogue heavy um, because Hudland is... He's starting to kind of veer away from what we know of Icon and Rocket, and and when I say veer away, I guess I that's the wrong term. He's he's adding more in this new version to the mythos of Icon and Rocket. The origin was was pretty close. He was pretty faithful to the origin that happened in the original Milestone back in the day, but now he's starting to add in some aspects of his own. So that portion of the story. I think is what accounts for some of this, um, a lot of this heavy dialogue, basically, uh, even to the point of him referencing Superman uh, in this issue, which I thought was very was interesting reference. Yes, yeah, <laughs> he, he references Superman, um, and why isn't why isn't Superman around in the Dakota universe? Well, you'll find out in this issue if you if you read it. So, you know, the art by Doug Braithwaite continues to be just absolutely fantastic it's it's super detailed it's it's very kinetic it, it portrays emotion and action very very well and uh, we get a good look also at the the villain of the piece in his non-human form at, at this point i'll say uh, and we also learned that the, the lawyer that rocket's mother has uh, had a relationship with or developing a relationship with there's obviously more than meets the eye to her as well so on top of all that it continues to be a very 
appropriate and relevant political piece with some fascinating ideas. You know, it's, this whole issue starts off with Icon and Rocket taking out a wow. lot of the infrastructure of um, of drug kingpins and and uh, the people that manufacture wow. illegal drugs around the world. So. What are the ramifications of that? And when it starts hurting the economy of, of big countries uh, like the United States, then all of a sudden they want to get involved and not in the way you would think, you know, like and somebody even says somebody in the administration, well, hasn't this been the point of the war on drugs to stop drugs? But really, when you look at it, the one percent, the people that control the wealth, they actually don't want to really stop drugs not when you stop and think about it because <laughs> then the banks lose out on all kinds of money for uh the fees yeah. that are you yeah. know when drug dealers deposit their money to have it laundered it's and a, that yeah. sort of thing it, it's know? about management of the drugs not not elimination right <laughs> exactly and so who who is really being harmed here is, is it really you know by, by stopping drugs you know it, it, uh. It's interesting. So once again, it's it's about the, the haves and, and not the have-nots. You know, the priority is on those who probably need help the least as opposed to need help the most, you know. And so I, I thought that was really – I thought that was great, you know, just that quote. Every country from China to France is having similar convulsions. The consequences are worse than the actual global drug trade if you can imagine that and the one woman in the administration's voice of reason for who <laughs> yeah, yeah. who, who are, are the consequences are worse for who well for the people that are in power and control the money but the people actually suffering addiction you know that's not worse for them so uh again pretty fascinating and i, I this has probably been the issue where it was kind of most overt in terms of the kind of the political leanings of the book but just based on the story that Hudlin is telling, it it makes sense that it would be. So uh, this continues to be a, a great issue. I, it's far and away my favorite of the the milestone series that have have come back. So yeah. what do you think, Rocky? I, I agree with you 100. percent I I just love this. I actually I, I'm not sure if I'm being educated or indoctrinated. To be honest with you, I I have heard over the years that the theory that the world's economy is based upon the illegal drug trade. I've heard that. I've I've never, to be honest, I have no idea if it's actually to the extent to which it's true. I've watched various documentaries on it. I find it fascinating, and I love the fact that uh, I love the fact that Reginald Hudlin here with the Icon and Rocket mythology, he he can go, he can take this story places where. Perhaps, you know, you can't take a Superman story. You know, there's a lot of talk of politics in Superman, Son of Kal-El and in action comics where maybe Superman can't get involved or rock the boat politically or geopolitically. But I really love love the fact that Icon and Rocket here, I love the fact that this story is is going to those places where normally you don't see superheroes go, at least in the mainstream DC universe. Clearly, this is a this is a Dakota universe. What that uh, is not, uh, this is not a universe where Superman exists. Superman did exist, but there is, uh, we won't spoil it, but uh, something uh, happens in the, in the continuity of this particular universe that uh, sort of takes Superman off the playing field, so to speak, in a very uh, interesting way, involving the, uh, involving the, involving the antagonist of this story. I, I really love the fact that, uh, the way that they're dealing with real world politics and the consequences of it all. I, I even like the fact that there was even uh, part of it was a little tropey at first. I, I was at first, I was a little disappointed that uh, 
you know, all of the president's advisors, you know, a lot of them are like the typical white males and the only sensible one uh, was the, a young uh, black woman named Adele. Uh, although there were some presidential president's advisors who did say, you know, did say, well, you know, maybe we should talk to Icon first before we tell him to, you know, they tell the president, we know that this icon's been around on, on Earth for quite a while now, and we know that uh, he's been around for uh, over a century, and perhaps we should talk to him first about his actions, about does he realize the the consequences that his actions against the world drug trade might have. And uh, it really makes you think, and the, the way that they call him Mr. Lord, this this villain, we now know that uh, we now know that icon has to, has been preparing to confront his arch nemesis for many decades, uh, based upon when Mr. Lord first killed him at the end of the American Civil War. I love what Hudlin is doing here. He's he's really crafting a rich history. I love the politics of this because it feels like alternate fun alternative history. I'm really enjoying this. High recommend. By far, I agree with you. The best that um, the Milestone Line has to offer thus far. Yeah, and the other thing that's interesting about this is when you talk about dealing with sort of realistic problems, right? Like how many times have we heard it? Well, how come Batman doesn't just, he's a billionaire, you know, how come he doesn't solve the problems of Gotham city by using his vast fortune, or you can even go back to the hard traveling heroes from, uh, you know, green lantern, green arrow, Denny O'Neill back in the day. How can you, you help the green skins and the blue skins, you know, what about the Brown skins here, yeah. here are, here is a hero, you know, a hero and sidekick, I guess you'd say who are, going after real world problems, you know, tack tackling the illegal drug trade. So that's great yeah. that somebody's uh, actually telling that story. Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Superman number 78, number two of six. This is written by Robert Venditti. We have art by Rolfredo Torres. Colors are by Jordi Belair. Letters by Dave Lamphere of A Larger World. Uh, I, I really like this. Um, a quick word about the art. Wilfredo Torres art, it's not my favorite style. His his art isn't quite as detailed, especially the backgrounds, as I, I normally would like. But what he does do a great job of in the art is capturing the body language of the actors that played these characters in the Superman movies that we all love, you know, Superman one and two. Um and you know, from from the way he has the the Clark Kent <laughs> version here uh, or Christopher Reeve Clark Kent version look at an empty box of french fries with the, with the expression on his face to later uh, in the issue where he's looking up at the sky you know when he's superman uh, it, it it's exactly as as Christopher Reeve portrayed that sort of thing in in the film so i, I love it do i wish it was a, li a little more detailed a little more dc house style yes but it's a it's a minor nitpick, and I also think that the use of color by Jordi Belair, the fact that she doesn't go too far into the primary colors but but keeps it a little subdued, uh, kind of sits in that nice uh, that nice space of it's not hyper-realistic in color. It's not all the way primary like a classic superhero comic would be, but it's somewhere in the middle, and that sort of suits the tone of the story. Um, and then far as far as the t story itself, I mean – we don't know because Richard Donner, I don't think, ever really develops his plans for Superman 3 that far. You know, having had a falling out with the, the producers during his work on Superman 2 as the director, he only he directed like 80% of that movie. 
And then despite the fact they brought in another director to finish it, it still holds up. And a lot of people think it's their, uh, the best Superman film, uh, Superman two, but regardless of that, they never got that far into development for Superman three, but we do know. Uh, and I think I talked about it, uh, when we reviewed the first issue that the plan was to have Brainiac be the villain. And so it, it's cool that, you know, I, I, I don't know, I, pro- I guess I could ask him. I, I don't know. I sort of doubt that Robert Venditti had any input from Richard Donner, um, you know, for this story, he probably just heard the rumor and knew, uh, like a lot of people, that Brainiac was the planned villain for for Superman three. And then when they, we did get a Superman three, they did sort of take that idea. You know, Richard Pryor plays the genius computer programmer, and you know, again, mid eighties when computers were starting to be a thing, war games and all that. Uh, and they did use this idea of a malevolent computer, so a little bit, I guess, pulling from uh, a Brainiac type villain. But this is the Brainiac that we all know and love with the green skin and uh, the arrogance and, you know, the computerized brain and the genius intellect who's out there trying to collect and preserve specimens throughout the galaxy. So it very much feels in terms of story and gope like like a Superman film from, from Dick Donner. Uh, and, you know, Christopher Reeve, when I think of live action Superman, that's who I picture in my head. He's my Superman. So... Uh, yeah, I think this is great. And I think the second issue was even better than the first in terms of capturing the tone and the feel of the story really, really well. So uh, I know Robert Venditti, he's of that, you know, our same kind of age group, our generation. And so he, he it's Christopher Reeve is his Superman as well. And so it's not a big surprise to me that he's, he's absolutely nailing this. So yeah, yeah <laughs> uh, I, I really liked it. I, I mean, I liked the first issue well enough. I thought, okay, it's pretty good. Second issue blew me away. Really, really great. Um, I have high expectations for the continuation of the series. And great main cover by uh, Ben Oliver, too. It's really, really fantastic. So It really is. Yeah, uh, I share your sentiment. You know, it's funny. As I would put it here, this, I almost felt like, I felt like it had poor special effects when I read this too. And I mean this in the, I mean, I mean that in the nicest way. I mean, there's even a, a scene here that I'm showing now with Superman. There was that scene in Superman two where he, he rips the S off his chest and he, and he uses it as sort of like a net. And he actually does that same move here against some of Brainiac's, uh, sort of like robotic, uh, duplicants there. And it's, 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 it's zaniness. It's got its craziness about it. I, I would much have preferred the plot line of this Brainiac story as opposed to what we got with the Richard Pryor movie on Superman with Superman three. But I don't think they would have quite had the special effects to be able to pull it off. I'm glad that this is in a comic book form. Um, my, my favorite moments are the ones with Lex Luthor, the narcissistic, you know, that Gene Hackman is Lex Luthor. I mean, with Superman asking for Lex Luthor, Gene Hackman, you know, Lex Luthor's help. I mean, that, that dialogue is so excellent. You pointed out the scene with the French fries. I mean, the scenes between Lois and uh, Clark, this is all Christopher Reeve, Margaret Kidder, Gene Hackman. These are the characters. This is really a, a hearkening back to that to that seventies uh, zeitgeist. That 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 feeling of you know right back to the beginning where you really feel like a man can fly for the first time. And uh, 
again, and, and the art was just fantastic. Jordi Berlera and the colors. Everything here uh, basically fits. Even right at the end there where Superman surrenders to Brainiac because he wants to protect the people. It, it, it feels there's a simplicity to the plot here that puts a smile on my face. Uh, but it, it's just it's so Christopher Reeve-esque Superman. And it's, it really is. It, it's got definitely it's a high recommend. Anybody who's anybody who's a fan of Superman and maybe doesn't regularly read comic books, but you're likely a fan of of Christopher Reeve, this is definitely you know uh, uh, an issue that you want to get. And you could actually pick up this issue and not read the first. And I, I thought it was actually surprisingly self-containing, to be honest. <laughs> in a sense, you, you you get a sense of the gravitas even in the absence if you haven't read the first one. So it was very well done. Yeah, I agree 100. percent And and. It's a good point. I'm glad you mentioned him giving up, surrendering at, at the end um, when Brainiac threatens all the the citizens of uh, of Metropolis if Superman doesn't give up. Yeah, very much a Christopher Reeve Superman moment. You 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 see it coming. I could picture uh, Christopher Reeve a- acting out this scene in my head. So yeah, I came across as very authentic. So fantastic job from the entire creative team. All right, next up we have another. Uh, Superman book and you know this one was was also done really really well so kudos to the entire creative team on Action Comics 1035 Philip Kennedy Johnson the writer Daniel Sampier on the uh, on the art and we know he was on the show recently he talked about how he's uh, he's finishing up his run on on Action Comics uh, and moving on to something else that we'll hopefully hear about soon uh, Adriana Lucas handles the colors on this issue. Dave Sharp on letters. It's World War Rising Part Six, uh, action packed and and pretty emotional. What do you think, Rocky? Oh man, you know uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson. Uh, it's been it's been one of those things we've been we've reviewed every single one of his issues, and it seems like we we keep getting he keeps getting better and better and better. And I even noticed this. I I've just this. Uh, I had time this past weekend. I actually read his six issues of Alien. He for over at Marvel. He's writing that. I was surprised how how well he nailed Alien. And this Superman. You know, I I used the phrase before. It's a, it's an oft repeated phrase I use. It's a it's it's. Too, I say it too damn much, but I always say putting lipstick on the pig. I said Philip Kennedy Johnson has put lipstick on the pig of Bendis's Superman run. And I have to tell you, as of if there's any doubt. I read this issue and the emotion in this issue was just incredible. Uh, Superman showing up, rescuing Lois Theola is, is desperate. She's she's a pawn of Mongols. She feels helpless. She's a Theolosian Mongol setting this trap by sending these these Theolosian refugees to Earth. Clearly is a trap for Superman to lure him to War World and it's working. And Superman doesn't care and... You know, John Kent knows it's a trap. He's worried he's going to lose his father to the future because he's seen, he's read about his father's fate when he was in the 31st century. Lois Lane is even a little bit worried. There's something different this time. Will Superman return if he goes? Uh, even the Justice League show up in this issue. And there's great moments with the Justice League that say, look, you took the Genesis fragment from the United, from the United States in their, in their diplo- diplomatic, um, wranglings with the Atlantis. We, 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 you, you're no longer on the Justice League, Superman, because we need to distance ourselves from you. Uh, so the Justice League need to remove themselves, need to remove Superman from their league. Batman wants to help Superman. And Batman even alludes to Superman that I know you've got the authority because 
Batman is aware that Superman has put together another team to go to War World. But meanwhile, what, what frames all this, so much happens in this issue, is number one, beautiful art by Daniel Semper. My God, this art is fantastic. You feel the emotions. You feel the emotions of Theola as she's desperate, as a Mongol kills her. He's willing to sacrifice her. And Superman doesn't allow her to, doesn't allow her to die. He takes a lot of the, uh, she, instead of her self-destructing, Superman absorbs a lot of the energy that would normally kill her. You can see the gravitas, the lengths of which Superman will go. Superman's vow to the two dead theologians saying, I promise you, I will find out who your names were. I will remember you. I'm going to go to War World. I'm going to win. I'm going to defeat Mongol. I'm going to remove your chains. I'm going to come back. This feels so epic, Superman. It's incredible. The way that he talks to his son, John Kent. This has emotion. This has beautiful art. This has gravitas. And, uh, you know, we... Uh, when we interviewed uh, Daniel Samper there, he he tweeted about that scene where Superman is with Lois Lane. There's a beautiful scene there where Superman shows up to 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 talk with Lois, and uh, you know Lois almost she wants to just ask him, you know, did you did you go to crypto? Did you say goodbye to crypto? Did you do this? Did you do that? She's almost trying to avoid saying goodbye to him, but you know he just interrupts her and says, "Fly with me." And they fly, and it's a husband and wife moment. And I feel a, a, I felt a husband and wife moment of two people who love each other in a way that, frankly, I never felt when Bendis wrote it, because Bendis's dialogue always took me out of the intimacy between Lois and Clark. But Philip Kennedy Johnson nails it here. He does a really good job, and 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 the artists just show so so fantastic. Superman says, "I love you," and Lois Lane says, "Show me," and just a beautifully epic. Uh, very class, class, very classy, uh, artistically rendered, uh, uh, love scene between, uh, Lois and Clark. And I love this issue. I absolutely love this issue. I, I'm, I'm rooting for Superman on War World, man. I'm rooting for Superman. And I feel that Superman's going to win. And at the end with, when we got the authority, the new authority team of, you know, Midnight or Apollo and, 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 uh, Natasha Irons and the rest of the, the new authority team that currently is being, uh, scripted by Grant Morrison. There seems to be a little bit of continuity issues there. This is a younger looking Superman than the Superman we see in Superman in the authority, but I'm prepared to let that go. I'm really enjoying what PKJ is doing here. And man, I'm definitely. Looking forward to War World, and I and I want Superman to kick Mongols' ass. I, I I feel that this has gravitas. Very impressive. Yeah, I sort of agree with you, and I sort of don't. Um, because yeah, there are there are multiple continuity problems uh, this <laughs> week, not just with with Superman, but this is one of the more egregious ones. That clearly is a much older Superman. That that story feels like it takes place. So much further in the future where Superman is more cynical and more jaded, we get a, a, as you said, a very heartfelt moment between Lois and Superman. This is not like forget about the gray in in his hair that Mikhail Yanin uh, illustrates him with in Superman and the story. Like like forget about anything to do visually with that clearly being an older Superman and this being a younger Superman. Just let's just look at his his dialogue, his vocabulary, his his language, the way he carries himself. That is clearly a different Superman in terms of who he is and how he carries himself than the Superman here. But yet we're supposed to believe it's the same guy. He, he Now all of a sudden here, here's that authority team that he put together. Yeah. And we see the whole team at the end of this issue. 
as opposed to even over in after issue three of Superman and the Authority, the whole team hadn't been put together yet. So it's a bit it's a bit of a problem. I like when I saw him show up here, I'm like, wait, what? What the hell is going on? <laughs> so it doesn't it 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 doesn't work, and it it feels so much like again moving things around on the on the game board dc editorials moving things around on the game board to make what they came up with in future state fit and we know that future state part of what future state was was from the work that was already done on 5g that got basically trashed it got thrown away when when didio got fired and so it's not a real surprise that when they're trying to fit all these things together there are gaps and and things that just don't work and it, I feel like, okay, I can let one thing go. I can let two things go. But when they start piling up, it's it's the confluence of them. You know, it, it it's the preponderance of them where after a certain time, I'm just shaking my head going, no, this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. Like maybe if it was just the Superman and the authority thing, I'd be okay with that. But then also, if you recall, when Philip Kennedy Johnson, when he finally got finished with that first story arc where – John Kent was, woe is me, my dad's going to die, blah, 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 that just felt, frankly, bad <laughs> that we didn't really care for with yeah. um, the Godlewski and uh, and Phil Hester art. When, when he got done with that and we finally started getting a, a real true Superman story, you know, Batman showed up. And one of the things that they were doing, if you remember, was uh, Batman was having Superman go and fly and test his strength and, and what have you. And again, it's sort of... I feel like the reason that's done and it's mentioned again here by Superman in this issue uh, and it's mentioned in the uh, authority, but again, that's supposed to be Superman in the authority. It's supposed to be so far into the future. You could maybe understand why Superman's powers are diminishing, but that's been brought up time and again, right? Throughout these six issues of war world rising. Oh, we don't know why, but Superman, apparently your powers tend to be uh, draining. They're failing. They're not as strong. And all that to me feels like just an excuse for, why can't Superman just go and to your point, just go and kick Mongol's ass? This shouldn't be that hard, right? This is Superman. And in my mind, regardless of how many times they keep planting that seed in my head of, oh, Superman's powers are diminished, he's losing his powers. In my mind, because Mongol, despite the fact that he was always supposed to be on the dark side level, even DC and it's it seems like they're finally fixing that. Even Darkseid himself was never really on Darkseid level. Was never, never came across as powerful as he sh should have been. Yeah. So how can I think that Mongol, who's a lesser Darkseid, is really that big of a challenge for Superman? Is he a threat? Would he? Would it take a couple issues for Superman to defeat him? Sure. But is it this long, drawn out? Superman's trapped on War World for whatever it is—weeks, months, years—we don't know. But the whole point that I'm getting at is because they came up with this crappy idea of future state and told a crappy war world story in future state of Superman, you know, being stuck there for so long, his costume's gone. And, uh, we want to draw him in these skimpy outfit with gladiator chains and barbarian Superman. Oh, what a cool idea. I didn't like it. It wasn't good. And, and so now you, you have to do all this maneuvering like, Oh, Superman's, you know, he, he's older and he's losing his powers. And so he put together this authority team. Well, we never even saw the authority in, in future state. So how does that fit in? Plus this idea of him being depowered or less powerful so that he does, you do have a reason why he's stuck there. 
and to tell a long story. And it, again, like one thing, okay, two things, uh, maybe you're, it, it's, that's too many. And now it's, it's multiples and that's where I'm, and it's yeah. not that I'm not enjoying this, but that's where I'm like, I can't wait for this to be over. I can't wait for them to finish telling the story of whatever they need to tell. So we know that future state's not going to happen and we could just move on without telling stories that have to serve some editorial purpose because we decided to do future state, which, you know, the, the longer we get from future state and the more it continues to influence stories that need to be told in the now, the more I dislike, like I already don't like future state, but the more I think it's one of the biggest mistakes DC's ever made. It's just so bad that it's impacting stories in a negative way. Yeah. So did I enjoy this issue? Yes. But the biggest thing I feel is that I wish it wasn't necessary. I wish we could just get uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson telling the story that he wants to tell. You know, and there's little parts of it. I don't, I don't really agree with the Justice League showing up. I don't feel that's in character for the Justice League to show up and go, sorry, Superman, you, you went and took the Genesis fragment, so we're going to kick you out. Mm, doesn't ring true to me at all. I would have thought they would have. I would have thought the Justice League actually would go and help him on War World. To be honest with you, I, I, I don't think they needed on Earth. To be honest with you, I don't think Leviathan is that much of a threat. But anyways, yeah, yeah, exactly. But that again, that doesn't suit the narrative of what we saw in Future State. So how can that happen? Yeah, hey, if he needs to go take out Mongol, they'd take him out that much faster if everybody went. It'd be over in an hour, and then everybody'd be free, and then you're done. But again. You know, moving these pieces around on the board. Well, let's kick him out of the Justice League. So that explains that, you know, all because Bendis aged up John Kent. And we want John Kent to have his, you know, moment in the sun. And we'll yeah. talk about that when we get to Superman, Son of Kal-El. So, but that's the problem I have with it. It's, it's not the story in and of itself. It's it's the situation. It's the the current status of the DC universe and, and you know, all these different things that, that are forcing specific story choices onto Philip Kennedy Johnson. He doesn't just get to... Like, just give me a Superman. Just give me a good Superman story without all these machinations that need to be put in here so that it makes sense in continuity. Because even when you do it, even when you are moving all these pieces around and trying to line everything up, it still doesn't line up. Yeah. The edges still don't match, you know. Yeah, it's very it's very messy. No question it's messy and yeah. uh, I think I think readers uh readers viewpoints are going to uh, mileage is going to vary on that depending on how. I mean, Grant Morrison is always a little bit of a wild card with his storylines at the best of times and and uh I think the 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 easier one can simply just focus on maybe just the story PKJ is, is trying to tell it might be you might be to enjoy the story just a little bit more but we shall see uh we still have one more issue left on the grant morrison superman and the authority so who knows maybe maybe there's going to be some de-aging of superman shenanigans uh, with that or or it's going to get worse i don't know <laughs> yeah and when i do when i do just focus on the story that philip kennedy johnson is and, and try to put all the other stuff aside i i do feel better about the story but the thing i keep coming back to when i focus on that is well that should be about two issues it shouldn't take very long for Superman to defeat Mongol, you know. It just shouldn't. Yeah. So that's where I come out. I come out on that. But you know, regardless, I, I would buy this just to look at the um, the Daniel Sampier art. Like when Superman swoops in in front of John and blocks that punch from Theola. I, I mean, just that's just a fantastic scene as the yeah. you know force of the punch radiates out. That's a that's great. There is a backup story with. Um, who is it? Jimmy Olsen and the Guardian, which uh, it seems like it's starting some new 
sort of story tales of, of Metropolis. It seems okay. It felt uh, very triangle era um, of, of Superman, you know, and that makes sense because Guardian was a, a big part of that era, as was Jimmy Olsen. So if you're a fan of that era, like, like I am, you probably will enjoy this. And if you're not, maybe it won't do quite as much for you. But, but it's written by Sean Lewis, the artist by Sammy Bosry. Colors are by Ulysses Ariola and letters are by Dave Sharp. So I enjoyed it well enough. I still would prefer to have the comic cost a dollar less and not have the backup because even though it's, you know, mildly entertaining, it's not, to me, it doesn't add that much value to the, to the book. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I just sort of skim right over the Jimmy Olsen, the Guardian thing. To be honest with you, why are we having this backup? I'm so excited about the uh, the War World thing. I think just when it's starting to build up something good, some hype, why don't we have more War World War World story? I, I think we're just starting to get we're just starting to get really wound up on the whole uh, Superman is finally leaving Earth, going to War World. That that story really seems to be, you know, finally taking off. And because we've waited a long time since Future State, you know, Future State teased some pretty awesome Mikel Janin art with Superman battling on War World, and we're where Superman still isn't on War World yet. <laughs> and I and I just, you know, not to take anything away from Sean Lewis and the creative team and the backups, but uh, I still feel like, man, oh man, this is just not what I want to read right now in Superman. And, uh, you know, maybe at some point I'll, I'll, I'll read the backup more fully, but I, I didn't do this justice because I couldn't. I mean, it's such a jarring, jarring shift to go. I'm so excited when I'm done reading the main Superman story in action comics and then all of a sudden, I got to read Jimmy Olsen. Come on, like, <laughs> sorry, yeah. I, I just I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it, you know. But I'll, you know, I promise Sean Lewis I'll read the backup next time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, on to the next book we're going to talk about. It's uh, Mister Miracle, the Source of Freedom, number five, from writer Brandon Easton. We have Fico Osio on art, Rico Renzi on colors, and Rob Lee on letters. So this is a six issue mini. So this is the next to last. Uh, Next to last issue of uh, of the series. What do you think, Rocky? Uh well, where does one start here? Well, uh, just let me get started here. I gotta. My apologies. I just uh, for those listening on the podcast. Uh, uh, we we get a lot of answers. Uh, we got a lot of answers to some of the questions I've been having. Uh, in particular, we were wondering this Mister Miracle, this Shiloh Norman, doesn't seem to remember much about his past. He doesn't seem to. He, he doesn't. He doesn't know Scott or Scott Free or Big Barda, and he wasn't. You know, he wasn't. Didn't really know Oberon, and he doesn't. You know, he he doesn't doesn't really know a, a lot of things that we would expect him to know. And and uh, Ober. Uh, Oberon here, actually, uh, from last issue, they need to travel to New Genesis to confront uh, uh, Never. And Oberon, in it's, it's kind of comical, he, he built, out of an old Chevy truck, he built a, 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 tr- <laughs> a spaceship. Only Oberon can build a, a dimensional traveling uh, vessel uh, from, the ports for, from the parts of an old uh, pickup truck. But that's what he does. And... Um, they end up, uh, they end up traveling to New Genesis where Shiloh ends up meeting up with, uh, Orion and they end up battling the forces of Navir or never and, uh, never free. And, uh, 
this is where Oberon explains to uh, Shiloh Norman why he doesn't why he doesn't remember every, every everything, and he uses the analogy of a donut, a glazed donut, where and he and that that's uh, I guess that's Oberon's way of explaining the new omniverse <laughs> that that basically your your memory I, I guess your if your memory is the entire donut, and maybe what you remember might be one of the sprinkles, but you, you your mind might encompass all of those sprinkles, but you just don't access all of those memories at once. And that's basically the omniverse. And it's a little bit weird. I don't, I still don't know why some people remember more and some people remember less. I guess some people remember all parts of their donut. None people don't. I don't know. I'm trying to use the analogy that Oberon has still seems a little bit odd to me. It still seems, uh, it still seems a little bit, off. I'm, I'm not really sure if this Shiloh Norman is on Earth designate zero and he doesn't remember much about New Genesis or Orion or he doesn't remember much about uh, Scott Free or Big Barda. What about the rest of the DC universe? So I got I got a lot of questions that I still have some questions that have to do with the larger aspect of the DC universe. But in any event, we get the Mobius chair here uh, and the Mobius chair... Uh, Obviously, is is a device used to travel through time and space, and uh, Shiloh Shiloh sits on the Mobius chair in this issue to try to find out more about Never Free, and he finds out that um, uh, that uh, well, he he ends up traveling to a point. They end up traveling to a point in time just before when Never Free left her future, because she's actually from a, a future point in time uh, to come, and she, she left the future to come back to the past to kill uh shiloh norman because she blames shiloh norman for her galactic imperium being destroyed because in the future uh when apparently in the future never free remembers her parents scott and big barter leaving to go do some big battle and some big crisis i'm assuming that might be them leaving to bat to maybe at some point during maybe death metal and an aspect of the multiverse this version of Scott and Big Scott Free and Big Barda left never free left their daughter never in 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 their in her world, and they went off and got killed. And she she created a galactic imperium in order to 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 honor her parents Scott and Scott Free and Big Barda. And ultimately, there was a civil war that overthrew Never Free. And the that civil war, the leader of that uh that led that civil war against her was apparently Shiloh Norman. And that's why in her future, in, in, in Never's world, there are flags with Shiloh Norman on it. And the people on her planet, a lot of them love Shiloh Norman. And so this issue ends with Shiloh Norman and ultimately never free. They're going to be doing battle on, I guess on, on her new Genesis on, on at, in her time. So there, there was a lot of, uh, there's been, just a lot of uh, shenanigans here in terms of traveling through different spaces and time on the uh, with the Mobius chair. I thought it was, um, um, I, I thought it was a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit confusing. Uh, there was some source wall energy that needed to be accessed for the for the Mobius chair uh, in order to in order to travel uh, 1,252 years in the future. They. They, they needed to do certain things with source energy. So they needed to travel to the, to the source wall, which is the boundary between multiverses and then access some energy in order to go to Never's world. And ultimately that's where they're they're That's where they, they've ended up. And, uh, and now they're in the present. Never 
Never is now confronting Shiloh and Oberon as this civil war between Nevir's Galactic em- em- Imperium and Shiloh's uh, forces now are going to be battling against each other. This is the fifth issue. There's one issue left, and I guess they're battling for the future. I I think overall I'm a little bit critical of this issue because I, I'm a little bit confused. I think that... Uh, I wish uh, writer Brandon Easton was a little bit more clear. I, I don't like the lack of clarity on exactly what Shiloh Norman knows. I don't know why he had to make this so confusing. I don't know why it was necessary for Shiloh Norman not to remember. It just seems like an unnecessary plot point. Why have him not remember all this stuff? It just it just seemed rather absurd to me why he can remember some things and not the other. It just seemed it just seemed like a very cheap way to have a big revelation when it's not that big of a revelation. It actually, I actually feel like Shiloh Norman is kind of a fool for not remembering all this. It just seems a little bit odd to me. I would have, I would have given the character more gravitas had he remembered all, remembered more of the legacy of um, Mr. Miracle. Uh, In any event, I'm a little bit, it seems like a little bit much this issue. I was a little bit confused, a little bit disappointed the art was uh, even by Fico Osio's art was a little bit choppy at, at parts, but the coloring uh, by Rico Renzi was was amazing. It was really amazing. In fact, it it, it actually brightened up some of the uh, more choppy art in places. So overall, it was kind of meh for me. But it's but uh, color wise, it really popped off the page. Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree with you. This is probably the weakest issue I, I don't know that i would agree on the, the reasons and I, I don't know that i would agree that i i feel like shiloh norman is, is less of a character because he doesn't remember i it, it was confusing it didn't make a whole lot of sense for me like especially when never goes to the graves of her parents and there's nothing there it to me the logical thing is so this never is not from this reality it's not from this part of the the omniverse or the multiverse or whatever and so why would Shiloh remember you know not only did she has she traveled back in the past she's she's hopped timelines or or universes or multiverses or or whatever that to me would make a lot more sense as opposed to there's some sort of weird timeline or or life that Shiloh Norman has read I mean basically what you're telling me is Shiloh Norman is Kang and he has all these different timelines and so this Shiloh Norman here hasn't actually at this point in his life, met Orion or fought any of this stuff so he doesn't have any memory of that. Yeah, that's unnecessarily complicated. It 100% is. It's why nobody under- can really understand or explain Kang's timeline and, and history over in the Marvel Universe. And when you try, you end up with this giant seven-page entry in the, the Marvel handbook because it's <laughs> so convoluted. It's not, it's not necessary. We fell in love with this story because of the characterization of Shiloh Norman and the emotion uh, of him and how he was grounded, how grounded the story was, and everything in those first few issues that Brandon Easton has given us. And, you know, he did a good job of giving us those things and, and making us care about Shiloh Norman to the point that we're not saying this this particular issue is terrible, um, but it it definitely is is a little bit weaker. And so what I'm hoping is that the final issue will pull it all back together because yeah, this was a little bit of a, a downturn and, uh, and it felt like unnecessary because like Rocky and I both said this, it feels like this is convoluted just for the sake of being convoluted. 
it doesn't at least so from what we know so far there's doesn't seem to be an in story purpose for choosing to make it this confusing um and especially when you're talking about how it really felt like a very clean story up to this point with Shiloh Norman really becoming sort of a legacy character for Mr. Miracle, um, which he's, he's never felt like that before. To me, Mr. Miracle's always felt like, hey, Mr. Miracle is scot-free and Shiloh Norman isn't really that, that connected to him, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that, yeah, this was a bit of a misstep. Um, and, you know, it wasn't terrible. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was lacking something. Well, I mean, uh, some, uh, when his some, some Oberon's, ex- of... yeah, but o- Oberon's explanation, when he says about the donut, you only lack the proper perspective to fathom the situation as if somehow if, if Shiloh gets a different perspective, he's going to remember everything. That's just nonsense to me. If it, the, the whole thing was just unsatisfying, like why he couldn't remember. But anyways, yeah, the, the, the thing it's missing, it's, the story's missing the humanity that we got in Shiloh Norman, that, that relatability that we got from Shiloh Norman that, that made us invest in the character that we had in the first couple of, couple of issues. So that's not to say that Brandon Easton can't bring that back around in, in the sixth issue and, and tie it all up and make it make sense. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know why he, I don't know why it was paced this way. Um, not sure. He, it feels like he's given himself a tougher task than, than is necessary. And I agree with you about the art too. And the Fico Osseo art for the most part has been fantastic uh, the entire time. And this one, it feels a lot more choppy. But again, I'll go back to the fact that those early issues, the art had time to breathe because you got some character moments. Uh, and maybe the whole reason that Brandon Easton gave us those character moments and we got the character moments visually from Osseo was because they knew the back half of the series was going to be you know, jam-packed with all this action, which it's okay if you do things like that um, but you do run the risk of having it feel like it's not paced evenly, which I think is sort of what we're we're feeling. So I still recommend the series overall, um, but I reserve the right to change my judgment on it or my grade <laughs> on it based on how the last issue goes, if it wraps it up uh, satisfactorily or not. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, all right, up next we have Batman versus Superman number 22. So this is the final uh, issue of Gene Luen Yang's run and the final issue of the series for now, at least. Uh, so Gene Luen Yang is the writer. Paul Peltier handles pencils. Keith Champagne on inks. Hi-Fi on colors. Seda Temofonte on letters. It's a standalone story. It has Calendar Man and, and Mixius Pitalik. And I, I just, I really wonder about the story. I do. <laughs> I'm not sure what... The purpose is like if Gene Luen Yang was leaving the series and why didn't you just have it end after he told his his one story arc um, uh, about the archive of worlds or whatnot. Uh, this is sort of similar in a way in that Mixes Pitalik gives Calendar Man the ability to very meta ability to, to be able to look from one page to the next or, or look outside the panels. Um, he doesn't actually know he's in a comic. He's just Mixes Pitalik has told him that life is arranged into boxes, those boxes being the panels of the, the comic. <laughs> so it, it's pretty meta and it allows for a really fun story um, and some really crazy hijinks as, um, <laughs> as Calendar Man, you know, will, will swing his fist at the bottom of a panel because he's punching somebody in the panel below. 
but when you're reading it, you know, from side to side, basically, Calendar Man is, in a way, sort of time traveling, uh, you know, doing things to affect a character <laughs> sometime out in the in the future. So it gets a little meta, um, and it's certainly fun in that way. But at the end of the day, you end up feeling like, all right, what what was what was the point of that? Uh, I guess to remind us that comics are supposed to be fun. So, I mean, it it, it was fine. But again, I, I'm just I'm curious why if he was if Gene Luen Yang was having to leave the title because of other commitments, I think they should have just ended it at 21. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, do you throw this in the collection of the Archive of Worlds because it's wildly out of place? Even though the the fact that you're breaking panels and doing things that are sort of meta ties into that a little bit um but but this is much more overt than uh, the story in the archive of worlds uh but either way uh at least we got a chance to see um, some more fantastic art um and and this version of calor man's ne ne actually never been my favorite i do sort of um and mixes pitlick even talks about the crazy costumes that calendar madness have. I do sort of like the old costumes, not, not the flower one, but the one where he had the, like the calendar on his forehead and the numbers on his, um, on his belt and on his, uh, on his shoulder pads right. that from the eighties, that's my, my favorite <laughs> calendar man, uh, costume. But, uh, yeah, it, this was okay. I mean, it was fun. Um, but ultimately not, not really memorable. So what did you think Rocky? I laughed out loud reading this. Uh, what Gene Lu, uh, Gene Lu Yang does right here is that he makes this a done in one. This is a single issue and it's a story and it ends and it's great. And that's what I wish the first time he spent like, what was it? Seven or eight issues on that one long story about with, uh, with the, uh, film strip villain there, which was awesome and cool. The way he, they broke the fourth wall and jumping from film strip to film strip and the, with different, with different ways of accessing the multiverse. Uh, uh, Yang has done a good job in his, in his, in his first set of stories, taught, comparing the multiverse to almost like a, like the uh, the different types of film strips, so you can jump from one movie to the next, and you jump from one universe to the next that way. Here he does it with Mixoplick talk, comparing the multiverse almost to like little boxes. He you know he tells Calendar Man like because Calendar Man he he knows exactly what to say to Calendar Man who ends up being killed by Joker Toxin. He resurrects Calendar Man because calendar a calendar consists of little boxes. Well, that's a good way to conceptualize the multiverse. You know, each each box is its own kind of universe maybe. And so, and the the way that the way that he ingeniously uses it, uh, where Calendar Man can literally jump jump into the future by you know knocking out his villains or. Uh, by swinging on the, on the next box. I mean, oh, again, this is a story that can only be told in a comic book, utilizing the comic book medium. And, and it's fun. It's, it's funny. And it's even, and, uh, and of course, leave it to Batman to figure out a way to, to, uh, defeat him by chopping off Calendar Man's arm. <laughs> and the way Calendar Man beats up both Superman and Batman by beating them by, by hitting, by all the panels, the middle panels where Batman and Superman are, and then Calendar Man is all around, is surrounding the middle panel and pu literally punching through the panels. And it's it's comical. It's funny. It's something that, you know, Mixiez Patelic or Mixoplick would do. And and uh, that the fact that he's behind it is all the more funny. Kite Man, Firefly show up. Uh, 
this was a, this was really great. This is breaking the fourth wall. This this is a classic modern day Silver Age tale, and this was a lot of fun. And kudos, this is a done in one story. That's what I like about it. We don't need to, we don't need more of it beyond that. The one, the funniest scene is when uh, Calendar Man to defeat Superman pushes. <laughs> instead of attacking Superman, he goes to the next, he reaches below the next, onto the next panel and pushes Superman's head down as he's using his super cold breath and Superman actually ends up spraying himself with super cold breath on the, on the even lower panel. It's just hilarious. I I don't know. I thought this was funny and uh, I'm curious to give it to my wife who's, who's, who doesn't, she always says she doesn't know how to read comic books. I'd be curious to know if she could catch on with what went on here, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Yeah. Solid, solid issue. Uh, um, So, all right, let's move on. You have checkmate number four from writer, Brian Michael Bendis art. It's by Alex Maleev. Colors are by Dave Stewart. Letters are by Josh Reed. Uh, why does this exist? I don't know. I, you know, I, I got finished reading this and I was, I was curious, like we're always so harsh on checkmate because we, it's boring. It's slow. Um, it, it has continuity problems. It has pacing problems. And so I'm like, are are we, are we alone in this? Are, Are there people out there that are really digging on, um, on on checkmate and so i went to comic book roundup and if you're not familiar with that site it's basically an aggregate site where they'll they pull in all the written reviews about comics and they they it's kind of like rotten tomatoes for for comics right um the reviews there especially the um the the ratings for readers because it just like rotten tomatoes where you have the critics and then you have the audience here you have the critics and you have the the fans the actual people that read it the critic score on checkmate is a little higher than the fans not that much higher but a little higher but so far three issues have come out right so three have been reviewed the first one was okay the people seem to want to give it a chance it dropped off significantly for the second the third one was atrocious i gotta imagine the rating for this one's going to be below it's a score of one to ten I, I got to think based on if it keeps going in the same direction it's going, the reader re- rating for this one, aggregate rating going to be below five. This is not a good, not a good comic. Uh, it's just not. And the other problem with it is for whatever reason, for it being delayed and and not coming out at the right time, it doesn't match up. It doesn't make sense. There's even a, another comic i think it's in justice league this week which we'll talk about in a little bit where it specifically says checkmate doesn't exist anymore or or uh, uh leviathan rather doesn't exist anymore so this didn't come out at the right time it's it's it was late nobody cares nobody read the leviathan event nobody wanted it it doesn't suit the superman title which we talked about at the time it was coming out how horrible it was. It's Brian. This is Brian Michael Bendis trying to do some spy espionage crime noir stuff. It never should have been in a Superman book. It didn't make any sense. So, okay, let's split it off into its own thing. Okay. It still doesn't make any sense. Um, it's kind of like what I always say about the, the Joker. If the Joker really existed, how Batman would defeat him in 30 seconds or what I was just talking about. <laughs> Superman would take out Mongol in no time. This is sort of the same thing. 
you know, you're not going to sit there and tell me that Lois Lane's going to go to her husband. No, don't get involved. We'll take care of it. When he could get involved for like an hour with his X-ray vision or whatever, find find whatever evidence he needs to find in Markovia that Leviathan now, you know, controls. He doesn't even have to invade the airspace. He could go up into space, right, and use his telescopic vision and find whatever evidence. Go in, grab it, give it to Lois. It's over. This this is not a thing. Mark Shaw is not some great DC villain mastermind that it should take any amount of time to defeat him. First of all, like Mark Shaw is a, a Z-list character, not even B, C, or D. He's Z. He's all the way at the end. Nobody cared about Mark Shaw. But I still don't like the fact that Bendis took a character that at least had potential and turned him into a bad guy. From the stories that we did get of Mark Shaw – this is all wildly out of character. It doesn't make any sense, but you know, Bendis, he doesn't care. Continuity. <laughs> what's that? So I, I just, I can't even try to, to use your phrase, uh, Rocky, I can't even try to put lipstick on the pig anymore. I can't even try to, <laughs> to be positive or try to be nice. This is just bad technical comic book making. This is not good. It's not even a technical, like forget about, okay, well, I don't particularly care for the story. It's crime, noir, it's espionage. I don't like it. It doesn't fit into Superman or DC or whatever. Like, leave all that aside. Just talking about technically making a good comic, having it paced well and plotted well and scripted well, this doesn't even check off those boxes. I guess you could say, if you are a fan of Alex Maleev's uh, art style, that this visual storytelling is pretty good. I am not a fan of Alex Maleev's style whatsoever. Uh, but I will say that the visual storytelling in terms of the transitions from panel to panel and how it's visually paced. He does tend to move the camera angles around and try to keep it interesting. Uh, he's handicapped in that this is really a talking heads uh, story throughout. Uh, Bendis, as we talked about when we covered issue three, he likes to skip over the parts where uh, action actually happens and just tell us about it. That goes back to what we talked about when we covered issue three with him jumping around the timeline and all kinds of flashbacks. So instead of us actually seeing any of the action, we're just always told about it, which makes it even more boring and more of a talking heads comic. And again, I'm not the only one that, that thinks this. I've talked, I won't name any names, but I've talked to other, (laughs) I've talked to other professional comic creators, people that are working right now, names you would know if I said them, but I'm not going (laughs) to throw anybody under the bus because it's told to me in confidence that are on the exact same page as me about this. Like, why would I want to read a comic that talks about the things that have happened that are exciting rather than just showing me and being a story of the exciting things that have happened? Like, it, it makes no sense. This is – it's just a terrible, terrible comic. I cannot believe the DCs published this. I, I really haven't. It's that bad. Yeah. Um, well uh... – I don't disagree with anything you said. I will just say that uh, trying to put, and there, dare I say it again, lipstick on the pig of this issue, we at least learned two things. We learned that the elusive snowman's ticket that Sam Lane referred his daughter Lois Lane uh, to uh, before he died, he actually, and it, uh, it's been revealed to be the birth certificate of Leonardo, Leonardo Lane, Lois Lane's brother, Leonardo Lane, his birth certificate Another uh, stupid Bendis plot point. That's right. Now, what's interesting is that on her brother's b- birth certificate, it does not indicate his mother's name. 
it indicates his father's name, Samuel Lane, but it, it, it has crossed out the city of birth and his mother's full name and maiden name and mother's age. And the date is crossed out. And, and so why is that significant? What is the secret? What, what is so secretive about, is there a secret of Lois Lane's mother that we don't know about? Is she, you know, what, 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 What's the big secret there? I'm not sure. The other big secret was revealed at the beginning is when a Manhunter and Green Harrow confronted uh, Merlin and the Guardian on the Justice League satellite. They, Mark Shaw is trying to take out the Heroes Network consisting of the Justice League satellite, the Hall of Justice, and the Bat, the, the Bat Cave. The various hero, hero, Heroes headquarters located around the globe are all part of a heroes network that are coordinated through various ways to deal with the threats that come to the earth. Uh, he wants to infiltrate them. Uh, of course, Lois Lane figured that out last issue and they end up in the altercation. Green Arrow, I think Manhunter manages to make Guardian bleed. And in, in an analysis of the Guardian's blood, it's revealed to put, potentially contain, according to Bones, some type of potential alien DNA. Uh, Director Bones has said that uh, it the, the the working theory is that that somehow the reason why all these people are working for Leviathan or because they're being manipulated from him and they're being mind controlled and they don't realize they're being mind controlled. That's why Leviathan from the beginning through all this drawn out multiple series we've been getting, Leviathan has always generally tried to resist killing people generally speaking, because he always wants to talk to them and he brags about being able to talk to people on his side. Well, it looks as if it is indeed a form of mind control. Lois Lane spoke to super, her husband, Superman, in this issue. She was afraid that she was infected by this. Uh, they were fearful of this. There are some continuity glitches here. Lois Lane and Superman are talking about trying to find some evidence of war crimes against Leviathan, uh, as if, and they mentioned some they clearly, Bendis is clearly screwed up. Bendis wrote action comics. Leviathan worked with the Legion of Doom in attacking Metropolis. For some reason, they think that Leviathan is one of the heroes of Metropolis and stop Luther. That's not what happened. He actually attacked Metropolis. He he's a, he's a wanted man by every intelligence agency that he destroyed on the planet. It makes no sense that they don't have any evidence of war crimes against Mark Shaw. This is very forced storytelling to try to prop up Leviathan. It just doesn't make uh, any sense. At the end, we do know that Talia is working with Mark Shaw, and at the end, the church that all the that uh, that director Bones and Man Manhunter and uh, Green Arrow and the question we're at along with Robin. Uh, it and Steve Trevor, it ends up being sucked up and transported by by Mark Shaw at the end. So we do get some action here, but where this is going, this is the exact opposite of uh, PKJ's action comics. I, I don't really care where this is going. I just, I just, I just, I want this to end. <laughs> yeah, and to your point about the birth certificate, here we go again with Bendis. Like, why do you even put? Lo you clearly don't like Lois Lane, based on the, and and this is the thing. Like, he's talked about Lois Lane being the most heroic person in the DC universe, the the best hero, the best person, his favorite character. Then why does he treat her like crap? He has her betray Superman left and right, giving away Superman's identity in his Action Comics run, and now she can't even figure out that there was something hidden in this stuff. Snowman, really? 
as intelligent as you say Lois Lane is, she can't figure out that this birth certificate was in there. Because when Superman tells you tells her, oh, yeah, there's something hidden inside, she just pops off the head like, no big deal. <laughs> you didn't try that before? You're a genius, Lois Lane. Like, Bendis. She doesn't, on, have, she, she doesn't have X-ray vision. <laughs> she didn't examine it? Yeah, it just it's so bad. It's so bad. I just don't understand. I, I just don't. Never been a Bendis fan. And I mean, again, I've met the guy. It's nothing against him personally. His love of comics is infectious. I want to like his stuff, but it's just bad. I uh, Anyway, let's move on. Deathstroke Incorporated, number one. Joshua Williamson is the writer. Howard Porter is the artist. Hi-Fi does the color. Steve Wan's on letters. I don't have much to say about this. It Talk about feeling really forced. Um I thought it was super cliche. So Hive, we know, has been a kind of like a, an AIM or a Hydra criminal organization in the DC universe. You know, those are over in Marvel. But if you're a Marvel or MCU fan, you'll you'll know about those um, corporations. Hive is sort of the equivalent in the DC universe. They've gone up against the Titans a lot of times. Um, and for some reason, Joshua Williamson leans into that idea of, of Hive uh, and decides that they're going to make killer bees Basically, people become their insides of their body are transformed into these horrible bees through this poison honey that this um, this mother uh, figure is uh, or queen figure has uh, infected this town with. Like, really, could you hit the nail more on the head here? Like, it's so cliche, it's so tropey, and even that would be okay if it wasn't for the sloppy art too. like Howard Porter, uh, you know, God love him. His style is so different now than it was uh, when he was back on that classic Grant Morrison justice league run. And it's because he had uh, an injury and he taught himself how to, to draw all over again. And, and that's fine. You know, I'm not, I'm not picking on him because of that. That's, that's very admirable. And I love the fact that he's come back and he still has a career. And most of the time his art is fantastic. He doesn't have an anchor here is the problem. And when he inks himself, the art is just sloppy. Um, the, the proportions on the, the figures aren't correct. He, he, he just, he needs an inker for his art to look a little more polished and to come across a little better. The storytelling is still okay, but uh, it, it just looks so messy when he doesn't have an inker. So I didn't care for the art. I didn't care for the kind of the beats of the story um, where I, there is sort of a saving grace is it is interesting hearing Deathstroke talk about why he's doing what he's doing. Um, it's, it's black Canary getting a chance to shine solo without green arrow around. I like that. So there are a few little redeeming qualities here or there, uh, which might make this a good series. Um, but I felt like this first issue was below average. It just, I just didn't care for it that much. Um, But I will, I will, one more thing. Uh, I will say what was absolutely fantastic without question is the uh, Alex Hughes Black Canary cover. Oh, wow. Yeah. Absolutely. uh, Yeah. Despite this being a, not a very good comic, (laughs) a below average comic, uh, in my opinion, I did, I did uh, order the Adam Hughes cover just because it's that good. So yeah, I'm I'm hoping to, I'm hoping to pick that up uh, my myself. I uh, I also ordered that, uh, but I I I may have ordered it too late from what my retailer tells me, much to my uh, chagrin. But um, yeah, I thought this was you know, 
Joshua Williamson, you know, Joshua Williamson, he, he just gave an interview today to uh, The Beat, and uh, he talked about uh, Justice League and his upcoming series, Justice League Incarnate, which is a, a, a seek, of course, the, the second part of his trilogy of of leading into the the crisis of in 2022. And he, he talked about uh, this new series here, uh, Deathstroke Incorporated. And it's at some point it's going to link with Robin as well. He's writing on Robin and he's, he's also he'll be writing Batman as well. And of course, he'll be writing Justice League Incarnate. And so they're all there. You know, he's working toward having some sort of linkages between all of them. And I, I don't, you know, I'm a little bit, uh, it worries me a little bit to be quite frank, but I agree with you. I thought this, the, the, the art, art here was a little sloppy, but, uh, that it was serviceable enough that I, I still, in, you know, I got into it and I enjoyed it. How, Howard Porter, uh, I, I remember him fondly uh, again from the Grant Morrison days, but, uh, you know, he's, you know, he's a, Decent enough artist, but the story here was really simplistic. You know, I, I got to say that the whole point here, you know, this is Deathstroke and, and Black Canary taking on the forces of of uh, uh, well, actually, they work for Trust, and the Trust is the director of Trust is this Juliet Ballantine, and I just find it funny that you know, with we had Leviathan, you know, you know, check, you know, take out the DEO, take out Checkmate and Task Force S and, and Task Force X and Star Labs and Shade and Argus and Project Cadmus and all these intelligence agencies were taken out and now we're getting them all back. We got we we got the DEO. We got <laughs> we got we got Argus back. We got Shade. We got all these. Uh, we got Star Labs back. We got Checkmate back. And now to top it off, now we have trust on top of it. So we've now we've got more intelligence agencies in the DC universe than we did before Leviathan took them all out. So I just find this kind of uh, funny and. One question I have for Joshua Williamson is why on earth would you create a new intelligence agency? What, you could have revived a handful of, of intelligence agencies that already exist in the DC universe, but you had to create a brand new one right from scratch. So I find it, you know, so I think a little, I think a little bit of that must have been, uh, Williamson's ego. Which I suppose he's earned it because he certainly paid his dues with DC and he's certainly writing enough titles now that he could probably write whatever he wants. But uh, I thought this was boring. Straight up, I thought this was boring. I don't even know what town this is. Is this a town in Europe? I, I look for a place. Is this in Europe? Is this a small in American town? Is this someplace in Europe? It seems cliche. All these people are just sort of like being trained to be clones to infiltrate, you know, to work for the hive and then infiltrate all these other towns and so I'm not even sure what this is all about. Uh, I actually thought it was cliche. Uh, you said one of the things that you liked, Jace, was the uh, Deathstroke talking about him wanting to maybe sort of get on the side of angels a little bit because he's he's always been a bad guy, but he's got all the money he wants. He wants to maybe re seek some kind of redemption. And um, we know that Black Canary's just there because Oracle says, go keep an eye on trust. Because guess what? Surprise, surprise. Maybe we shouldn't trust trust. And so... But that's not really interesting. So far, it seems really tropey and really cliche. But th this is the type of comic I gotta admit that if I was, you know, you know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen years old, I might be right into it. But I've seen this story a thousand times uh, start off this way, and it's just really uh, this. I, I'm just not intrigued by it. There's, I'm not intrigued by this at all. Like, uh, I can't believe that you would send Deathstroke to take out this this level of minor threat with the Black... It, I don't know, it just seemed... 
this just seemed really disappointing to me and I hope it picks up. I hope it picks up next issue. Yep. I agree. Not a, not a very good comic below average, but room for improvement. Uh, all right. Up next, we have detective comics. Number 1043 Mariko Tamaki is the writer. Dan Moore is the artist. Jordi Blair on colors. Aditya Bidikar handles the letters. There is a backup here. Uh, task force Z the Task Force Z story written by Matthew Rosenberg. Derek Robertson is the artist. Diego Rodriguez on colors. Rob Lee on letters. Uh, I guess this ties into Fear State. I mean, it says Fear State in Econo's Nightmare Part 1. But this this felt like the least Fear State tie-in of any of the Fear State stuff we've read so far. Not to say it wasn't good, but uh, what did you think of this issue, Rocky? Well, I, I didn't. I didn't mind it. This, this, this was a very action-packed issue. I'll, I'll give you that much. I, I love. There's a. There's an alternate cover uh, with that says it, it's like a wanted poster. It's got the huntress on it. It's. It's actually. It looks gorgeous. I think it's those video video game covers. Uh, anyways, it looks. It looks really nice. Uh, uh, has the huntress on it, and uh, it's. I like to get a, the whole set of them. They look really nice, and. But in any event, the the uh, the story itself is basically the forces are trying to take out Mer Mer Nagano, uh, Mer Nagano, and Simon. You know, Simon Saint. Right now, we're we're moving toward future state, and the future that we know of future state <laughs> is. I'm not sure if it's. I'm not. I have a feeling it's not actually going to take place. But Simon Saint is, is Gotham's in chaos right now. Simon Saint needs to take, he needs to get control of Peacekeeper 1. He sent Peacekeeper X against Peacekeeper 1. And meanwhile, uh, while this is happening, unbeknownst to Simon Saint, Simon Saint, some, somebody is attacking to try to kill the mayor. And Batman is, has to protect the mayor. And, uh, you know, Mayor Nagano tries to escape. And Bat and he he ends Marigano himself. He ends up being attacked in his own office, and he uses he uses a trapdoor to escape behind his desk. Again, kind of tropey. And he ends up. <laughs> I find I find it hilarious after having this huge argument with Simon Saint, you know, because Marigano allowed a private security organization like the Magistrate Program, headed by Simon Saint, to sort of take over the police security in Gotham. You know, uh, he, he's expressing his concerns and Simon Saint is trying to, you know, put him in his place. And so they 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 agree to disagree. And then Simon Saint leaves. Marinagano's is he's attacked and then he escapes under the trapdoor behind his desk. Batman follows him and he ends up he ends up literally in a in the sewage uh, again, once again, in the sewage uh, area of Gotham City, the sewage pipes, the 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 the. I don't know, like the all the drainage and the the sewage area of of, of Gotham City. I almost think that more people live under Gotham than they live on the main streets of Gotham. But it's un, it's just crazy. But the art here is fantastic. Dan Mora on the art is really good. The you really get a sense that uh, uh, the mayor's life is very much in danger. You really get a sense of the gravitas of the situation. Batman is doing the best he can to try to uh, find the mayor, to try to rescue him, do his best to help him. And and at the end, you know, this is linked in with uh with the the uh the vial that 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 villain who who died um uh what's it vile spawn or you. what 
Yeah, Hugh Vile. Yeah, Hugh Vile. And Marika Tamaki, uh, this Hugh Vile villain that she sort of introduced us to, he, of course, has, he's died, uh, but he's, he, out of his, his blood infected, I think, the, the sewage and the waters of, of Gotham City. And underneath Gotham, Mer- it's Marinagano that comes across this, these, these these parasites at the end and and the final panel it it, it suggests that Marinagano might end up being infected by these uh, by these by this vile parasite this vile spawn is what is teased to come up next and um, this was an adrenaline packed issue it it was I I liked it 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 moved quickly uh, we got some you know we got you know again it not a lot of real plot development but we got. It was at least action packed and fun. Fantastic art by Dan Mora. If if you haven't, if somebody hasn't been enjoying this run and on Future State and hasn't been enjoying the Magistrate or Simon Saint, you're not going to be enjoying this issue. But I've really been enjoying it. I like it. I like what uh, Marika Tamaki has done here. I actually I thought her Hugh Vile uh, as a villain. I thought it was interesting. I thought it had its its it was slower in parts, but this issue really picked up. I I like to see Marinagano. I I actually like him having a little bit more uh a little bit more involvement in the story. I'm surprised. It's nice to see finally his life is in danger more. <laughs> so I like this. I I thought this I thought this was pretty good. What do you think? Yeah, I liked it too. Um. The problem I have with it isn't anything specific to do with this issue. This is a very technically well-done comic, beautiful art from Dan Mora, great pacing from Mariko Tamaki. Um, here's here's the only issue that I have with it. And again, I have to point to Future State causing issues with, uh, with problems. I mean, there's even an e- editor's note here. The story takes place alongside Batman 113 on sale now. You add in the Future State and, and – you start looking at Mayor Nakano's uh, characterization in that future story, right? Like the mayor, and again, I know it's a possible future, but it still makes it a bit confusing because if anybody's read that and remembers the characterization of Nakano or some of the previous characterizations of Nakano in other Batman titles, and then you read this, you're like, well, how is this even the same guy? He's acting wildly different. This Nakano is not instantly unlikable. This Nakano doesn't feel like he's sticking his head in the sand. This Nakano doesn't feel like he's just prejudiced against vigilantes and people that wear masks for no logical reason as he's been portrayed in the past, even by Mariko Tamaki. So if, the, if I have any complaint about it, it's just he, Mayor Nakano's uh, characterization hasn't been consistent. Um, and, and again, it, it goes to all these different stories that are being told sometimes by different writers in different timelines, jumping around, telling a story of the possible future, then going back then trying to fill in the spaces and that sort of thing. And so you can understand uh, from that perspective, why some of these uh, characterizations might, might not be as consistent as they should be for a character that's as new as Nakano is. I have disliked Nakano almost every time he's appeared on the page. He hasn't been likable. He hasn't felt like a leader. He hasn't felt even like uh, an intelligent person. He's felt like somebody making a knee-jerk reaction because his partner got killed and blaming the wrong thing. Um, and like – just acting out of emotion rather than actually thinking about things and making critical choices based on logic and reason. And I have, I have no respect for people like that, whether it's in real life or in a comic. Um, <laughs> this, this for the first time ever, feels like we're getting an Econo who's actually thinking for a change. He's even standing up to Simon Saint going, uh, no, 
you are not the ones that you know are in charge of Gotham City. It's it's the responsibility of of myself, the other politicians. We're the ones that have to deal with it. So maybe a little more backbone from Nakano, maybe a little more critical thinking, and you wouldn't get in that position of the magistrate having all this power. Um, so maybe it's a little bit too little, too late. But at least he's realizing. At least he's trying to stand up for for Gotham City. So I do appreciate that. So overall, yeah, I thought it was a pretty good issue. Again, I wonder about um, kind of the pacing of of future state because you said it yourself not that much happened in this issue. Um, so what, what, why does future state need to be as as big as it is? Uh, and I kind of feel the same way about the Harley Quinn issue. We'll talk about in a little bit. So I don't know. Maybe future state could have been a little shorter. I don't. I don't know. Uh, the backup feature with Deb Donovan and and Red Hood. Um, written by Matthew Rosenberg. I thought it was just okay. I, di I didn't think this particular part of the story was as entertaining as the first two parts that we got from Matthew Rosenberg. Um, but we do know we're getting Task Force Z, um, and we know there's going to be a series, and I guess it'll all be explained how these dead criminals are back and are um, under the leadership of, of Jason Todd and who exactly they're going after and what exactly they're purpose is going to be, I guess we'll, we'll find out. So uh, I think this backup did its job. We got to have some great Derek Robertson art. Uh, Deb Donovan really shined in the first two parts, but this, this third part really just felt like kind of a by the numbers. Um, not, we didn't learn that much uh, other than, you know, Jason Todd gets captured by apparently who was ever pulling the strings behind task for Z. It's not Amanda Waller, apparently, thank God. So, uh, but o overall, I think the Task Force Z backup, obviously it served its purpose. It's leading into the Task Force Z series. Uh, and, you know, I throw it in the back of Detective Comics because that's Batman and Batman sells. So yeah. hopefully they'll get a, a good lead into the uh, Task Force Z book. Well, Anything to say about the backup, Rocky? Uh, yeah. Uh, the We know that J Jason Todd is going to be leading basically a, a, a bunch of, Dead former Gothamites, uh, Sundowner, Mr. Bloom, Bane, Manbat, the Arkham Knight, <laughs> all led by Jason Todd. They are Task Force Z. And this is, this is just the second part of a backup uh, titled What the F is Task Force Z? -Z? <laughs> and this is just basically Deb Donovan. Uh, she's break, she breaks the story. And that's what this is. And, and what's good about this is that, we we get these we get this awesome new team and we also get a it's a very it's a very good way i think of giving deb donovan uh some agency as uh, you would say and uh to really make her to give her some gravitas as a reporter particularly the way that she uh uh she ends up uh conversing with uh batman here derek robertson's art's fantastic there's a great scene where where batman ends up uh, picking up deb deb donovan and i'm thinking to myself she weighs a lot that batman's pretty strong there i mean uh <laughs> it's it reminds me of that classic scene of uh batman you know swinging with you know a, cl a classic batman pose and uh deb donovan uh you know swearing as he picks her up and and uh I don't know. I I really enjoy this. I I hope it is Derek Robertson going to be the artist for Task Force Z, or is it just for this backup? Do you know? Uh, I don't know. I don't. Because I, I would love it he if is. he was. Wow, I love the art. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, not sure. 
but yeah, overall, it's it's I I, lo- I love the I like I actually like the backup here a little a little bit more than the main story to be honest. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have uh, more Batman. It's Robin number six from writer Joshua Williamson. Gleb Melkanov is the artist. Luis Guerrero on colors. Troy Petrie on letters. The tournament has finally started. Uh, it's Ready, Fight. Um, and the, the title of the issue is Fight, 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 as the apparently onlookers are cheering that. Uh, and we get various fights. Round one, Robin versus Blue, Shrike. And then there's there's a few others. Round two, Robin versus Tengu. Uh, we got XXL against Raptor. We got uh, Ravager against the pro wrestler, it says. Drenched against Dacon, Dracon. Johnny Fist and Hawk. So there's a few different fights. It definitely has more of a the Mortal Kombat feel that we sort of expected the story to have in the beginning. And I did sort of enjoy that. Uh, and we also finally see some movement in the, the plot going forward about what's going on with the book that Mother Soul has that she sort of guards with her life. So next month, supposedly, we're supposed to find out who Mother Soul really is. Um, that may make or break this series in my mind. Um, because what I what I had hoped for in the series, which was some good Connor Hawk screen time has not materialized at all. And being that I'm not a fan of Damian Wayne, uh, I'm just about over this series at this point. So find out who Mother Soul is, find out about what's going on with the book. Um, and if that's enough to keep my, my attention or not. Um, as far as the art goes, this is probably the best art I've seen from Gleb Melkinoff in the entire series. Uh, he seems like he's, tightening up and cleaning up his his line work a little bit and i did enjoy that because he does have a tendency to get a little scritchy at times uh and look a little sloppy uh but i thought this one was was done very very well so in a way it's sort of the best issue and maybe it's because of the art the best issue uh, so far because uh, i feel like it was the best paced issue of the the series so far as well um but maybe that's just because it's filled with uh some great fight scenes uh and again Credit to Gleb Melkinoff on, on giving us some some fantastic fight scenes because a lot of them we only get one panel uh, when it's someone besides Damien fighting uh, and he does a good job of um, in in a single small panel oftentimes giving us an idea of just what went down in the fight so yeah uh, definite A plus on the art for this issue and uh, maybe a solid B for the story because again paced very well and and felt felt like it moved. The story along quite a bit especially and that's really impressive considering how much of the real estate in the issue is dedicated to the actual fights uh we also got a little bit of background on flatline which uh, i enjoyed and some some character moments between some of the fighters flatline ravager connor hawk um deeming himself so yeah overall i think the best uh the best of the the series so far um if i have any complaint yeah just give me a little more connor hawk and i hope um i hope mother soul doesn't turn out to be somebody completely ridiculous i hope there's not some retcon she's damien's grandmother or something stupid <laughs> like that so yeah. anyway what did you think rocky well i'm i'm gonna be a little bit more hard on this tom uh comic than than you are uh i, I will say that for 
for for one issue, when you consider that this is only one issue, boy, a lot happens in it. But uh, this is issue six. This this is one of the reasons why I'm now now I'm even more complaining about issue five. Why we wasted that entire issue, issue five, with Damien talking to the Batman family. This is supposed to be a, a tournament. I personally am absolutely disappointed. I can't express my disappointment enough with the fight scenes here. Uh, Gleb Melnikov is a great artist. I just wish he would have had more real estate upon which to show off his art for the fight scenes. Now, having said that, perhaps the saving grace is I really like the character moments between Flatline and Damien. I like that clearly they're building toward a relationship there. Flatline gives him a a manga book, which is like that has like sort of a part of the the manga story in the comic book that that Damien is reading has some romance in it and so they're hinting at maybe a future relationship between Flatline and and Damien and even even Ravager teased them about them maybe being in a relationship we learned something about Flatline's origin which was good but uh, I personally think thought that all these fight scenes why are we only getting one panel of these fight scenes it this this to me is like uh, why? I can't believe this. I like a lot of this stuff. I'd like to see more of this, you know, XXL stomped out Raptor, Ravager, you know, killing the, you know, pro wrestler with his own fanny pack. A lot of this sounds actually hilarious. I'd like to have seen these things play out more, you know, flatline ripping out the heart of some other opponent. And I, I would have liked, you know, I don't even know some of this stuff. Uh, and maybe I'm being critical here, but there, there's a two page, Two pages on on Damien's fight scene where he fights Tengu, snaps his neck, and then he fights this other guy. And I'm not even sure how I'm not even sure what some of the panels what actually happened to be as a criticism to maybe some of the art of Kleb, Kleb Malnikov. He hit this one opponent, this hawk character not hawk, but this bird like beak character ends up getting the sword through the face. I'm not even sure what Damien did. It it I was I was disappointed. I personally was disappointed with what I saw as uh, the fight scenes. I thought they were rushed. This is what I'm looking forward to. This this whole thing is talk of a tournament, and we're getting none of it. Now I'm hoping that next issue, now you know we're getting we're, next issue. It makes it clear that we're going to be getting, uh, you know, it hints at what there's going to be more more specific fight scenes next issue with uh, what I'm assuming are going to be the the final eight. And and hopefully, I really hope that we're going to be getting far better, more time spent on the choreographing of those fight scenes. And because one of the things that Flatline and Robin talk about in this issue is they, they disagreed about tactics. And Flatline really impressed Robin with her knowledge of being able to read an opponent. And you could see some mutual respect being built there. And I really hope that's built upon. But I found myself wanting more actions, but uh, overall, I'm definitely in this for uh, for the next issue, and I hope Williamson nails the landing here. And I know Gleb Melnikov, uh, I want him to be able to show off his art more with fight, with fight scenes. Yeah, I mean, th- this is there's not a li- limit, right? It's not this is not a limited series, right? Well, no, I fair enough, but I'm not sure how long this arc is. Is this like a seven a seven issue arc or eight issue arc? I, yeah, I would think at least eight issues, but yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I'm expecting kind of a big climax and cliffhanger next issue when we find out what the book is all about and who Mother Soul is, and then yeah. maybe the resolution in issue I, eight. So. I, I guess what I'm thinking is that if the whole point of this seven or eight issue arc is to find out who Mother Soul is, 
Then I'm disappointed because it started off with this being about a tournament. Uh, I don't want this to be, I don't want this plot to be sort of kidnapped by who Mother, I don't care who Mother's Soul is. I, I, I'm kind of looking yeah, forward to. Yeah, but the whole to, point, the, the whole point of why he went to the tournament was to find out who was messing with his mom. Well, I know, I realize so, that, I, but I, also, I, I, yeah, and yeah. I, I, I 100% agree with you. The whole reason that I even read it is because, yeah, I was told tournament. I was told Connor Hawk. Yeah, we yeah. should have known better than to think we'd actually get some fun fight <laughs> tournament because yeah. we haven't gotten it so far. It's so. just, it's just the nerd, the the, the geek in me, you know, the the Jean Claude Van Damme, you know. I mean, I want to see, I want to see this fight. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we were hoping for a fight and issue, and that's not what we're getting at all. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, up next, Batman Reptilian number four from writer Garth Innes. Liam Sharp handles the art, the color. Rob Steen on letters. Uh, we find out what's going on, what's been going on this entire issue. We finally come face to face with the big bad. It's sort of what we suspected, something to do with Killer Croc, something to do with um, uh, you know, reptiles and, and evolution and whatnot. Um, and I, I like it because what it, what it ends up doing, not because it was so obvious, but just because in a way it's so simple who the the villain big villain is and it's not some you know scheming uh you know genius level intellect or whatever it it what it does is it pushes the focus back on this version of of batman this this cynical version of batman who really doesn't care what happens to these criminals really does feel that they deserve to be punished and how sort of laissez-faire he is about them being attacked by this giant monster basically and explains why they're they were being attacked how they were marked and whatnot so it, it swings the attention back onto onto batman uh and and takes it off of now that the mystery has been resolved or, or been solved of who exactly the big bad is it, it definitely the mystery is over and the focus swings back to just focusing on batman and you can't help but wonder okay well how's he gonna defeat this monstrous entity uh, once and for all. So great title for the issue as well. The birds and the bees. When you start talking about <laughs> reproduction and genders and all that sort of thing. And so, yeah. Uh, and as far as the art goes, I mean, we we've praised Liam Sharp this entire time for his uh, moody, you know, just emotionally impressionistic art on this title and this issue's no, uh, no exception. It's, I don't want to say gruesome, but it's, uh, it's, it's foreboding. It's menacing. It's creepy at times. So fantastic job from him as well. Uh, what did you think of uh, issue four here, Rocky? Uh, I just loved how, I loved how, how Batman, it's, he he's he comes across as brilliant in this issue, but he comes across as brilliant brilliant in a way that lacks any kind of empathy whatsoever for Croc. He's yep. explaining to Croc why why he thinks that Croc might basically he's telling Croc, look, I think that you're a byproduct of an experiment that went wrong over the Tampa swamp in the 1970s and the military tried to cover it all up. And that basically you're kind of a freak of nature and that somehow, I'm not sure, Croc, maybe you're female. Are you lactating? Are you giving birth? I think you gave birth, Croc. And I think you, yeah. I think you, 
when you had a meeting with all the other villains, I, I think that you, you, you sprayed them with a, one of your pheromones and your offspring that you gave birth to is looking for its mother. It's looking for you. But since you sprayed all your other villains, it, it, it went to all your other villains like the Joker and Riddler and Penguin. And it realized it's looking for its mother, but every time it can't find its mother, it gets angry and it basically rips apart and kills whichever isn't its mother. And, uh, <laughs> And Batman is so matter-of-fact about it, telling Croc this story. Meanwhile, Croc is devastated hearing this. Croc had no idea that he was pregnant. He has no idea why this sack, this omniotic sack, is hanging from his his, his private area, which is hinted at through the art, but you can read between the lines. And then <laughs> at the end, where, where this creature uh, approaches Croc... You know, Batman's very, Batman is completely confident he's got nothing to worry about because Batman wasn't shot with a pheromone, so he's, you know, he's not going to be attacked. Batman sits back and watches Croc get sort of, I'm not sure if something sexual happened or something untoward happened to Croc from his offspring, but I got to tell you, man, Batman was just sort of like matter of fact about it. And it, the issue ends with this, this, this new, this creature just sort of staring Batman down. And so I'm not sure what's going to happen, but the dialogue here and that just the visceral lack of empathy on Batman's part is just, it, it, it's so consistent here. Well, you know, with, um, with, with the way that Batman's portrayed, I love this Batman. He's, he hasn't, he sort of have, has an indifferent, uh, indifferent attitude toward the, the villains and the way it plays out. And he's so efficient and he's so brilliant. And it's just, man, I, I really love this. I'm definitely going to be picking this up in hardcover form when it comes out. <laughs> yeah. Fan- fantastic story for uh, a, uh, the, the exact opposite of a kindler, gentler Batman. Yeah. You know, a, a meaner, a meaner, harder Batman. Uh, yeah. For maybe sure. that's, maybe that's exactly what, Gotham City needs. So, all right, on to uh, Justice League number 68. This is written by Brian Michael Bendis. Uh, we have art from Scott Godlewski. Colors are by Gabe Eltab. Letters by Josh Reed. And then we have the uh, Justice League Dark Backup, written by Ram V. Sumat Kumar is the artist. Nick Filardi on colors. Rob Lee on letters. So we saw last issue, at the end of the issue, the uh, the United Planets um, police force, basically the United Order of the United Planets, who says they outrank any authority on Earth. And they were asking Superman to turn over the Phantom Zone projector, and it looked like they were about to come to blows. You know what? I'll give Bendis credit for not falling into that old comic book trope with heroes fighting heroes. Uh, they end up sort of talking each other down and deciding not to fight against each other. <laughs> which is kind of cool. So then the Justice League says, okay, well, as long as we're not going to fight, can you help us clean up the, 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 the wreckage of the Hall of Justice? And that's where the United Order says, ah, you know what? Uh, we got cleanup of our own to do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the great, the great Hall of Unity, uh, Sinmar took out that. So they beg off and leave. And then while the rest of the League are debating on, should they rebuild the Hall of Justice? Is it just a target for other villains to come and attack? No, it's a, it's a symbol, it's inspiration. Well, should they? How should they rebuild it? While they're all debating, Superman and Flash take it upon themselves to rebuild it all around the rest of the league as they're debating uh, at super speed. So that was kind of a fun moment. And uh, the Hall of Justice now has its own AI, which is Kalix, 
uh, and Calix tells them that at least the executive bathrooms and kitchen areas have been uh, remodeled. <laughs> so from there, we, we jump over to, because it's a Bendis book, Damon Rose, Leonardo Lane, if you want to think of him that way, Lois Lane's brother. We just talked about it in Checkmate, seeing his birth certificate and whatnot. We saw him show up you know, a couple of issues ago. Does anybody care about this guy? Not really. This is, again, where things don't quite line up continuity-wise. Um, and somehow he takes out all of these supposed, supposed death strokes. We learn who's behind all these death strokes. Checkmate then shows up. This didn't feel like a Justice League comic to me. With all these different characters showing up who don't have anything to do with, uh, with Justice League. Um, so I guess... Bendis just doesn't have enough real estate in the Checkmate comic to tell the Checkmate story. So let's branch out into Justice League. Again, my argument is going to be that Justice League, the Justice League title should be a classic superhero title at the heart and center of the DC universe. Shouldn't have anything to do with spies or espionage or any of that nonsense because when you talk about the power level of the Justice Leaguers, and we just saw it fighting against Sinmar, Utopica, any kind of spy organization, Leviathan, Checkmate, blah, 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 whatever, they'd be wiped out instantaneously by Black Adam and Superman and Hippolyta and whatever. So, again, it's one of those issues where I didn't really see the point. Not much happened. We were teased a big epic fight. I almost wish Bendis had fallen into the trope. At least that would have been something exciting because we don't get much action in the issue. And I think this might – and I didn't count – but I think this might have the most words of any Justice League issue that Bendis has written so far because every panel is just littered with word balloons. Yeah. Like just especially when you get to the back part of the book where – or back part of the issue where uh, Damon Rose, Leonardo Lane is, is talking to Oliver Queen and, um, and the female Manhunter. I can't remember. Kate. Kate Spencer, yeah. Kate Spencer, yep. Yeah. Uh, when you get back to that that page, oh my god! Like you can't even see the art. Yeah, that page right yeah. there. You can't <laughs> even see the art for all those word balloons. That is ridiculous. The word balloons literally take up fifty percent of the area on the page. Yeah, I guess he no. does. I guess maybe Bendis doesn't like Scott Kudlowski's art either. I'm going to cover it all up with word balloons. So yeah, not not the worst issue of Justice League that Bendis has written because not much happens other than his diarrhea of the mouth, but eh, felt like this was eh. What'd you think of the main yeah. story, Rock? Yeah, I, I just, it, I, I don't know, like the whole Sinmar Utopica thing, you know, he was sent to the Phantom Zone last issue. We get into a jurisdictional jurisdictional pissing match between uh, Hawk Slayer of the United Order wanting Superman to give him the Phantom Zone projector. But they, they resolved that by way of an apology. So all that fake gravitas at the end of the last issue was all nonsense just to, to create some false uh, false suspense to bring us to this issue where really nothing happens. The United Order just goes home. Uh, they clean up the Justice League. The, the, this That was a waste of two previous issues. And then all of a sudden, it feels like we're... We're, we're depowering the Justice League so we can make a non-powered uh, Damon Rose, uh, Lois Lane's brother, look good. Uh, and he's he just reveals that he's he was somebody tried to recruit him to kill the Justice League. So I'm not sure why we're supposed to care. He's a really good spy. Who's dumb enough to recruit a human being to try to, to kill the Justice League? 
I mean, are we supposed to believe this guy's Batman? Uh, D.E.O., the director Bones, when they when he talks about the Damon Rose. By the way, it's not Damon Rose. It's the Damon Rose. So I don't I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but he's the Damon Rose. Oh, uh, threatening. Yes. Uh, yeah. Apparently, apparently he is really good. He's got a really good skill sets. He's his, he's Nightwing good apparently. So so that that's good. I mean, a Lois Lane's brother should be fairly competent. That's good to know. Uh, just one little continuity glitch here. I will note that uh, Bendis made the same mistake Scott Snyder did. He had Hawkslayer refer to Kendra Saunders as my Thanagarian sister. Kendra Saunders is not Thanagarian. This nope. is a common this is a common mistake made by many a writer. Kendra Saunders is not Thanagarian, but they keep getting it wrong. This is you know, it's not Shara Hall. Shara Hall is Thanagarian, not Kendra Saunders. But in any event, um again, I suppose that's minor in the general scheme of things. Apparently Kendra Saunders herself thinks that she's Thanagarian in this issue, so <laughs> maybe with the new omniverse things are different. But again, little glitches like that are sort of par for the course for Bendis, but of course he's not the only one who's made them, so I'll maybe cut him some slack on that. But uh you know, it, it's interesting it, if I'm trying to give this story some weight, it it's it's nice to know that maybe there's something to be said here with Checkmate being involved with the Justice League now, uh, you know, with, with Damon Rose, uh, with if somebody is trying to wipe out the Justice League and they're trying to do it surreptitiously or from within, or uh, there's a scheme here that we don't know what it is. There might be a story here, but the, I guess the problem that I've had, we've all had with Bendis is that we... He, Bendis hasn't earned any of our trust yet. He hasn't earned my trust as a writer. I don't trust him to tell this story so that it makes sense because he hasn't, I, I haven't trusted him so far. I feel lost with what he's tried to do with Leviathan and, and Checkmate to begin with. I'm still trying to figure out what he's trying to do with the Snowman's Ticket over in the Checkmate series. And now the most confusing series of Checkmate is now part of the his Justice League, and we've wasted two issues with a, one long battle sequence with Sidmar Utopica, a villain that nobody understood his motivation to begin with, and we wasted two and a half issues on Sidmar Utopica, and now he's just sent to this Phantom Zone, a, a plot device that Bendis has used no less than four times in multiple plot threads. I just... This is kind of a, you know... Uh, I This is kind of... This is... A, this is Still, this continues to be a miss for me, and I, I hope at some point we get some. I'm still looking for a reason why I'm supposed to care about Justice League, and I'm I'm just not picking it up. But uh, but Justice League Dark, the next story, it's nice to see that we're going to be getting some movement on that. And I don't know if you want me to start talking about that, or you want yeah, to yeah, go ahead. Well, the uh, Justice League backup, written by Ram V, uh, art by Sumit Kumar. Uh, Nick Filardi does the colors. I'll rob on the letters. Uh, as we've said before, this is usually the reason to pick up the Justice League comic because of the Justice League backup. This is, finally, this really builds up to a head. One of the secrets that we know uh, that was previously revealed is that in order to defeat the, the Upside Down Man in the pages of Justice League Dark, when Justice League Dark had their own comic, they defeated the Upside Down Man, but at a price. And Zatanna... Uh, the price that Zatanna paid is that every time she'd use her power, the Upside Down Man would become closer to uh, taking control of her. While the Ragman in the previous backup stories of Justice League knows, discovered Zatanna's secret. And in this issue where they're finally, they're battling Merlin 
in Atlantis and uh, John Constantine and, and Bibbo and, and Aquaman. They're fighting the undead because Merlin has resurrected the undead of, of Atlantis. They, they managed to defeat them. They're just on the cusp of potential victory against Merlin, but Merlin creates a duplicate of himself. And, and meanwhile, the real Merlin has, has used one of his power stones to force Zatanna to use up all of her magic thereby releasing the upside down man. And that's how it ends. And <laughs> this was epic. And it's like, and it's only eight pages. So, I mean, honestly, I'm, I was more excited about this backup because, uh, than I was in the main story. This has gravitas. This has uh, excitement for me. This is what I was sort of looking forward to. And, and I'm, and now that the upside down man was released, I mean, it took, it took Wonder Woman, the, combined power of Wonder Woman and Zatanna to defeat the Upside Down Man to begin with. And now that the Upside Down Man is completely in control of Zatanna, I don't know how they're going to, I don't know how this leads in the future state. I don't know how this, uh, I don't know how to reconcile where the, where Justice League Dark now is with Zatanna being possessed by the Upside Down Man, knowing how Justice League Dark ends up in future state I'm not sure how we're going to reconcile those two, how we're going to go there. Um, maybe, maybe this is the different ending that the, that the demon Etrigan sort of spoke of, or rather Dr. Fate said to the demon Etrigan in future state saying that said to the demon that, you know, look, you, you, pa the past and the present and time works differently for the demon. And so maybe somehow that the time, the present is going to change and the future is not written in stone because of the way that the, the demon Etrigan perceives time. And so I'm really curious to see how this is all going to work out. And uh, yeah, I, what do you think? Did, uh, were you more intrigued with uh, this uh, backup as well? Yeah, definitely better than the main story. It has at times felt like it has kind of dragged. Um, but again, it, it's tough. You only have eight pages. How can you pace it correctly when you, when you only have eight pages, but you're still trying to tell a story. So, you know, hats off to Ram V when he, when he gets it right. And he definitely got it right in this particular issue. What I love about it is like, again, not sound like a broken record, but he's handcuffed to some extent by the events that were shown in, in future state. And he has to address that with Merlin taking over the world and, you know, Etrigan basically being sort of, um, sort of like the totality, right? Where he has knowledge uh, of all his existence throughout all his time. And that's how they're going to pass the message back through time. Ramby, I don't know how much of that was his idea, but he is beholden to it to some extent. But even though he's beholden to that and, and heading toward that potential future, and, and maybe we'll find out how he's able to veer off from that. But even though that's a big part of the story, he's still able to bring in past elements like the Upside Down Man, who's a fantastic villain that James Tynan created. And so the fact that he's able to very seamlessly marry those two ideas together, that, that take that as a lesson. Some of you other writers out there who are, are struggling with what's going on and, and just so beholden to, to Future State and everything being tied into what happened in Future State. So uh, kudos to, to Ram V. Uh, I don't know that I am as big a fan of Suma Kumar's art as I would uh, when, as I was of Zermonico when Zermonico was doing the art. Um, but the, the art is still very, very good. Uh, it just, it doesn't quite have the epic scope 
that uh, that Zermonico's art had. And maybe it's just a matter of Zermonico's done some big stuff. He's done some uh, some DC uh, Dark Knight's Death Metal stuff. He he did the Infinite Frontier stuff. So maybe it's just a difference in in style. So uh, again, all I'll say in closing is that uh, this should have its own title. We said it <laughs> from the beginning when we found out it got canceled that it should not have and yeah it's can we flip it around can we get eight pages of bendis every month and have this be the main story <laughs> i would be all for that so yeah. uh all right up next we have uh wonder woman black and gold there's four stories in here i, I didn't four or five i didn't really care for any of them except one so i'm not gonna really go into detail and, and talk about them i'll other than the one that I, I liked and, and thought was was really good, um, actually I take that back. There there were two that were were interesting. So I'll, let me read off the credits and I'll talk about the two that I thought were great. Prayer written by Andrew Constant, art by Nicholas Scott, colors by Annette Kwok, letters by Dave Sharp. Amazing written and drawn by Paul Azaketa, lettered by Wes Abbott. Whatever happened to Kathy Perkins written by Cena Grace, art by Leonardo Romero, lettered by Pat Brousseau. Love Failed, written, drawn, and lettered by Andrew McLean, and then Wing Woman, written by Sherry L. Smith, art by Colleen Duran, lettered by Anne World Design. So far and away, the best story is the first one, Prayer by Andrew Constant, with some amazing Nicholas Scott art, where basically this mythological creature, um, the body of a like a lion, and, and the head of like some kind of an eagle or whatnot, uh, and apparently it moved from the Middle East to some probably Pacific Northwest type forest where it hid out for years and years. And Wonder Woman warned the creature of the uh, encroaching danger of man. It was eventually going to be discovered. And the uh, the creature, as it got older, it got kind of obstinate and, and, you know, wasn't quite all there. And so it, it ends up, it ended up attacking this family of campers and Wonder Woman had to come and, um, and lasso it and subdue it with her lasso. And then, she ends up uh, making a, a blood sacrifice and wrapping it in her lasso and then saying a prayer to Artemis and the uh, the spirit of this mythological beast is, is taken away and finally knows peace. So I thought that was a really, really good story, uh, showed the compassion of, of Wonder Woman and her understanding. And so that one really worked for me. And then the last one, Wing Woman, uh, again, Sherry L. Smith, Colleen Duran. The art on this one is fantastic. Like as you see this this female pilot, she was a wasp back in, in World War uh two and it's talking about her uh her role and, and what she was doing and she ends up getting attacked by one of the very first jets that ever uh existed um by a, a Nazi jet and Wonder Woman is there to to sort of save the day. And uh the reason I liked it is just was the art. The art, especially the clouds, was, was fantastic from Colleen Duran. The story itself was was fine. Um, I will give Sherry Smith credit for giving us a story that easily fit within the kind of the short amount of pages that she had. So I thought that was really uh, great as well. And then actually, let me mention the scene in Grace story as well. Um, whatever happened to Kathy Perkins, because it, it ties in very much to that period of time where Wonder Woman was sort of that mod 60s spy type. Uh, hero and didn't have her powers. Uh, and so I, I like that, that scene of grace gave us a story that harkened back to that. That was, that was pretty heartfelt, but I didn't, wasn't a big fan of the art in that one from, from Leo Romero. 
Uh, and then the other two stories, uh, they for me, they kind of dragged. They were tropey. They, the pacing wasn't good on them. Um, so I, I'm just going to leave it at that. They didn't didn't really speak to me at all. So uh, anyway, what were your thoughts on this issue of uh, Wonder Woman Black and Gold? Well, I'll speak to the stories you never mentioned. Uh, the one story by Paul uh, Azakata, uh called Amazing. It's just like, it was a nice feel-good story with a kid dressed up like Batman. He loves Batman. And he dresses up like Batman. And he plays as, as Batman. And then he, he ends up looking outside his window and he sees Giganta fighting Wonder Woman. <laughs> and the, the, the coloring, you, you, you see the, the bright yellow magic lasso and the yellow one Wonder Woman as she knocks out a great big Giganta. And, and of course... You know, she ends up rescuing these two kids, and uh, and uh, of course, at the end, you know that th- this kid that always dresses up like Batman uh, <laughs> is going to. Uh, is, it, it actually is revealed to be a girl. Uh, I, I'm assuming it's a girl. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I don't want to make a judgment. It looks like a young little blonde girl who. Yeah, I think it is a girl. Yeah, yeah but uh, you know, a young. At first, I I thought it was a young boy throughout throughout the narrative, but it ends up being a a girl that was fascinated by Batman, but now has realized that hey, you know, I can be a superhero. I don't need to be Batman. I can actually be Wonder Woman. So I think there's a nice message there that you know what I mean, because I mean there were probably a day and age where you know more and more of the superhero. Uh, stereotypes and prototypes were the were, were men and so this young girl has an epiphany that hey you know wow i can actually be a superhero and i i can be a wonder woman i don't need to be batman or superman or someone else so i thought that was a nice story and uh it was it was it was you know warm the heart a little bit i i agree with you about whatever happened to kathy perkins that call back to the 1960s sort of spy thriller type of wonder woman cena grace i i actually like that story I agree with you that I would have Leo Romero's art. I didn't really think was, I didn't really feel quite appropriate for it. Uh, mind you, the the art that we got before of um, who was the artist? Uh, oh, Steve Epting's art uh, when we got the uh, that he did of the other of on the in the last issue of Wonder Woman Black and Gold where he did this 1960s uh, spy Wonder Woman era. Uh, I would have liked to have seen Step Epting here, but this was not a bad story. I did I didn't mind it. Um Yeah, you know, again, I, I don't I don't I didn't have much to say. There was that there was that one story. Uh it should we should at least mention it. Uh I'm not I'm trying to Oh Hypnota. Uh, I'm not I didn't quite understand what the point of the story was and the art was really off to me. I, I I had a really hard time getting into it. I didn't quite. Uh, I'm trying to find the. I'm trying to find. Oh, love failed. It's called art and story by on Andrew McLean. Edits by De- Diego Lopez. I didn't quite get it. I uh, it's not my cup of tea. This is the type of stories that I'm. I. I I'm I'm always questioning. This is such a diverse. Uh, such a eclectic artistic style it was hard for me to get into this story but you know in fairness maybe somebody would 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 like it but i thought it was exposition heavy it was far too wordy and um it uh, didn't didn't work for me but you know overall i mean that the the nicola scott scott story that 
prayer at the beginning with with the hawk is probably the best one, uh, which uh, which you've uh, already said quite a bit about. The art there was fantastic, and that alone, I would love to own a page. I would love to own a few of those original pages from Nicola Scott, uh, but I I don't think I could afford it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, all right. Up next, uh, I don't really have much to say about this one other than uh, it didn't feel like it tied into Future State that much. So again, you know, like when I talk about with Detective, why, why does Future State need to be as long as it is? Because it feels like we're wasting issues on it. But anyway, it's Harley Quinn number seven, uh, Fear State part one. Stephanie Phillips is the writer, Riley Rosmo on art, Yvonne Placenti on colors, Darren Bennett on letters. Uh, there's humor here, uh, and at least... Stephanie Phillips always brings that to balance out the zaniness of Harley and the, the, the trauma that she's endured. So I always appreciate that, but I don't know. Didn't feel like much happened. Um, and Rosmo's art continues not to really do it for me. So I don't really have much more to say than that. I, it really feels like hardly anything happened in this issue. So yeah, what did I, you think Rocky? Yeah. I sadly, I got to agree. Not a lot happens in this issue. I, I continue to get uh, slowly converted into Riley Rosmo's art. I, I I don't mind it. I even like the uh, I like the issue. I I, I like the the cover Riley Rosmo cover here with, with Hurley trying to reconnect with na nature and a bear uh, uh, disrupting their their outdoor picnic with Kevin her sidekick Kevin you know trying to trying to fry a a steak on a on a big pot. In any event. Not much happens. Just to summarize, in this story, Hugo Strange manipulates Keepsake and uh, into thinking that he needs Harley to find Poison Ivy in order to get full control of Gotham. Because we got the origin of Keepsake last issue, and Keepsake is basically a former uh, is basically a former employee of the Joker, who was basically jealous of Harley. And Keepsake tried to recruit Harley to, as basically his sidekick last issue to no avail, and. In this issue, Hugo Strange just manipulates Keepsake into thinking that, well, he really needs Harley in order to get Poison Ivy because Poison Ivy, we know, is is still under the streets of Gotham and she's got her roots or can can control the under underbelly of Gotham and lots of people are looking for Harley. And meanwhile, Hugo, Hugo himself, Hugo Strange himself, dresses up as Batman and... and and terrorizes people as bat dressed up like a, a, a goofy looking Batman as obviously Hugo Strange dressed as Batman. It looks ridiculous. Uh, the humor in this story is we keep sick as his own group of villains, po polyphonist exclamation, sage swine, fellow frigid Blaine, <laughs> which is a female goofy looking Blaine. Uh, I, he calls one lady, he ran out of names. So he called the one lady sword lady. I mean, I mean, just, just, you know, more kind of like nonsense and silliness. And, you know, I, I, you can have some fun with it. And at, at, again, at the end, um, uh, Bella at the end, the, the guard, the gardener rescues Harley because, uh, for some reason, Harley decides to go on a meditation retreat with Kevin and, and her group of, her group of clowns that she kind of recruited they go on a meditation retreat and they end up that ends up getting interrupted by a bear and it's kind of goofy and it uh, I can appreciate what Stephanie Phillips is trying to do. She's trying to inject some zaniness and some humor 
into a scenario that really doesn't fit well with the concept of fear state. I mean, Gotham is in a state of absolute abject terror right now because of fear state. And here Harley is with her group meditating in a park. <laughs> it just, it it's, well, I mean, in that respect, it's kind of funny. It is something maybe you could see that that's what Harley would do. But this is a very, very different type of Harley Quinn that we see scripted in the pages of Batman under Tinian, who is supposed, who is looking for Harley along with the gardener. Stephanie Phillips tries to tie those loose ends together because at the end of this issue, the gardener shows up in this issue, having saved Harley, and the gardener wants to take Harley to go and to look for Poison Ivy, which really doesn't sync up very well with what's been going on in Batman. But I suppose you can, in our own headcanon, you can make it sync up because while Batman and Ghostmaker have been doing their thing, I guess Harley and Gar the Gardener and Batman have been doing their thing as well, but we don't really see Kevin or, or Harley's group that we see here in the pages of Batman. So there's not a lot of, there's not a, there's not a, there's not good synchronicity there. So, you know, but, but if you're enjoying the Harley comic, you can enjoy it. The, you can at least enjoy this probably separate and apart from Batman. Cause I can appreciate how, how hard it must be to, write Harley Quinn in, in a humorous, nonsensical kind of setting and have fun with it while dealing with the subject matter like the magistrate and fear state because those are two very different uh, emotional uh, templates there. But, you know, all in all, it's 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 serviceable, but it's, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping it'll get a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, I want to read about Harley and Ivy. I'm, that part I'm curious about. But, you know, again, it's only it's only two issues, I think, of each series for Fierce Day. Maybe it's three. So it just seems like we heard, didn't even get any Poison Ivy till right at the very end. So kind of strange. Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next is a Black Label book. It's called Batman versus Big Me, Bigby, A Wolf in Gotham. Book one, it's written by Bill Willingham. We're reminded that he's the writer and creator of Fables. I guess that matters because it's a wolf story. I don't know. Brian Level handles the uh, interior art. Jay Leistein does the inks. Lee Luffridge on colors. Yannick Paquette is the cover artist. Steve Wands does the letters. Um, so I haven't read a lot of Bill Willingham's work. Um, I sort of have a problem with his, his politics, um, but I went ahead and gave this a try because I was curious, honestly, uh, it's definitely a different feel, you know, much like the Batman reptilian story is a very different Batman. This is, uh, again, a different version of Batman. He's, he's a little more rigid, a little more by the numbers, a, a little more likely to bark orders at his, uh, at his bat family team members. But, uh, there's a little bit of a lighter side to him. He can, uh, smirk at times, um, as far as the, the actual story, Big B werewolf kind of thing, we don't get much. Um, we, we get some background into somebody's, uh, criminal organization, this Mr. Salinger. Uh, I guess we're, that's going to tie into this werewolf at, at some point. So it's a little bit of a, a murder mystery. We don't know exactly who's behind these, these murders, um, you know, they're thinking it's a wolf, but 
some of the evidence points away from the wolf, like the hair is not long enough. Why are the cameras smashed? This wouldn't just be a wolf. So obviously, if, if Batman doesn't know that it's a, a werewolf, um, so it's going to have some level of, of human intelligence, which kind of explains why things don't line up exactly right. Uh, as far as the art by Brian Level, it's a little stylized, very moody. It almost reminds me of... Um, like art from the twenties. It's a, it's a little mod, you know, it's a little art deco. Uh, and so I think it, and it's very uh, detailed at times. So I think it, it very much suits the, the tone of the story that Bill Willingham is, is trying to tell. So all that to say, I was, I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, it, this was better than I expected. I, I had pretty low expectations. Um, but this, this was pretty good. It was pretty solid. So, uh, and I also didn't feel like with so many Batman comics that, that this is a story that is so focused on Batman and who Batman is and, and whatnot. Like this is a this is a story where Batman gets plenty of of real estate on the page, but there's he shares that equally with with whether it be Gordon, uh, whether it be the villains of the piece, whether it be some of the the Bat family. Everybody gets a little bit of uh, gets a little bit of real estate, so I didn't feel like this was you know a huge amount of uh, of Batman and getting to know this this version of Batman um, much in the way that Garth Ennis you know in that in the Batman Reptilian which we didn't mention or haven't mentioned throughout is it's we're getting the sense that it's a different Batman a harder edge Batman but we're not beat over the head with it we're not told we pick it up through context uh, and it's the same way here. It's clear that this is a different um, version of Batman than we're used to, but it's all picked. All the clues are picked up in context. So, yeah, I thought this was pretty solid. What did you think, Rocky? Uh, well, uh, I I really enjoyed this. Uh, I'm a big Bill Willingham fan. I uh, I'm not going to pretend to know much about his politics, uh, so I, I I I don't know anything about that. I just know him as a writer. I loved his fables, and I and. Uh, you never mentioned a lot of the fable references. Did you? Did you ever, by chance, read fables, uh, Jace? No, I've never read it. Well, uh, I'm telling you, man, you, you it's awesome. I, I love it. I'm a huge fables fan. And one of the things about what there are so many Easter eggs in here for fables fans. For fans who who read fables, you're really going to enjoy this. Just uh, there's a quick reference in here, just so you know, in the fables lore. Fables are any fa fairy tale creature. In this case, uh, Bigby is the big bad wolf in Fables. And Fables, if you're a fable, if you are a creature, if you are a, uh, a fairy tale character, you're called a fable. Uh, fables refer to human beings as Mundies. We are Mundies. So uh, that's why Bigby refers to the Mundy, like the Mundy world. And that's why Bigby was so impressed that Batman could actually track him because it's not too often that a Mundy can track the big bad wolf. <laughs> so that's what he meant uh, there in some of these comments. Uh, Lieutenant Molly Grace in this issue is someone who's helping Commissioner Gordon uh, investigate the, the wolves. I suspect Lieutenant Molly Grace might be Red Rose, who is Snow White's sister. I'm not sure. I also suspect that this... Uh, uh, this, this this beautiful brunette in red uh, might be Snow White. Uh, you, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, this 
the, these murders that are taking place with that are killed by seemingly by a wolf or a giant wolf. It's taken place during the literary festival where over 200 authors are, are visiting uh, Gotham City uh, from around the world. And of course, fables are characters in within books and they gain their power. The more you believe in a fable, the more powerful that fable is. That's why Snow White is hard to kill because she can always come back because you can kill Snow White, but because so many people believe in her and read her stories, she's hard to kill. So the more popular a fable, the more powerful it is. That's why Bigby, the big bad wolf, is so hard, is so powerful as well. So that's that's a sort of a snapshot of the of the gist of the mythology of the fables. So that's why it's so fascinating here to see who is this Mister Salinger. And you'll note that a lot of the characters in here have names of famous authors. Even Stephen King is referenced here. This Mister Salinger. Uh, there's a guy named uh, Charles Ostergaard. He's the curator. And Mr. S uh, Mrs. Stax. I think she might be Snow White. There's uh, there's uh, it starts off mentioning a, a Mr. Austin is retiring. Uh, is that a reference to maybe a, a Jane Austen? I'm not I'm not really sure. This is all focusing around an incident called uh, Operation Alexandria. There's uh, something's going on here. Batman ends up capturing. Big B, Big B, Big Bad Wolf at the end, and, and Big B, he wakes up in the Batcave. And one thing about Fables, Big B is the most sarcastic bastard on the planet. He He's always smoking, and he's so sarcastic, and he's very arrogant as to his abilities. And the fact that Batman got one up on him, I'm sure he just probably makes him chuckle. Uh, Big B clearly held back when Batman attacked him because uh, Big B is very powerful and he probably is, it's probably going to be the last time Batman gets one up on Big B until they inevitably team up to f look at, to deal with the bad guys here. But this is a lot of fun. If you're a fan of Fables and Batman, boy, this is a must. And and this this is classic Bill Willingham. I'm really enjoying it. And if you like, if you even just like this issue a little bit, Jace, I'm, I'm confident that you know, I have trust in Bill Willingham. There'll be a lot more to enjoy moving forward because he, he generally doesn't put a heck of a lot of politics in his comic books anyway, at least not, not in my experience with fables anyway. Yeah. And I've never heard that about him. Um, but man, it's sometimes it's tough to support those guys who are spouting nonsense. Uh, anyway, on to the last book, uh, for this week that we're going to talk about. Uh, we mentioned it earlier. It's Superman, son of Kal-El number three, from writer Tom Taylor. Uh, looking for the letter, uh, the credits page here. Sorry, everybody. Uh, the art is by, should be by John Timms. Um, yep, there it is. Uh, Gabe Eltab is the colors colorist. Dave Sharp handles the letters. It's called The Truth. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about this, <laughs> this run. I'm a huge fan of Tom Taylor think he's extremely talented but i've said it before you know he t superman is his favorite character he's talked about how he finally gets to write superman he's not writing superman he's writing john kent and john kent is not superman despite the fact that dc editorial wants to shoehorn him into that role that we're reminded at again and again and again in this comic um i i'm just not liking this it's not speaking to me I'm sick and tired of hearing John Kent say, but dad, I saw the, I went to the future. I saw the future. I know you're going to die. I know you're going to die. I know you're going to die. 
you know, Ma Kent sends it, says, says it best to John Kent in this issue where she says, no, I, he's always come back. I believe in him. John Kent doesn't even believe in his own, his own father. Like with everything you've seen, John Kent, with everything, with the time traveling you've done and being trapped in a volcano and being gone yeah. for three weeks but coming Stop back to Earth and, and being five years older. Yeah. Like you, you can't think that – you know that there's a multiverse. You know there's an omniverse. Maybe the future you were in was one possible future. you got to have some faith that your dad's going to come back. Like that, that doesn't ring true for me. Like, yes, would I be scared that my dad wasn't going to come back? Yeah, I, I, I might harbor that. But would I keep beating a dead horse? No, I wouldn't because what's the point of that? What's the point of living in that in that fear? So I, I don't know. There's just so many things that, that aren't working for me. This just feels so editorially driven. I would love – don't get me wrong. I'd love to have Tom Taylor write a Superman book. This is not a Superman book. John Kent. Like I, I don't care if you artificially aged him up. I don't care if you think he's ready to handle the mantle of Superman based on where he is in the DC universe right now. He simply is not. The character hasn't been around long enough. He hasn't been developed long enough. He hasn't had enough stories. He hasn't had enough maturity. He hasn't had enough growth. He hasn't had, and, and I'm talking about publishing history and, and publishing maturity. It, it's, it feels forced. It feels wrong. And I, I'm not really caring for it. And normally, it, it's enough that Tom King is writing it, and Tom King, Tom is Taylor, one of us in terms Tom of, Taylor, Tom Taylor, right? Yeah. Tom Taylor's writing this. He's one of us. He's a huge fan of DC. He's a huge fan of Superman, and that should be enough. But it's not. There, there's just too many problems editorially with the mandates and and what's going on. And like, I even, I even would feel better about it if you just called it Superboy. Even with him aged up, just call it Superboy. But but the fact that we're supposed to be convinced and we're supposed to be buying into the fact that John is is Kal-El's replacement. That puts expectations, that puts a certain connotation on the title that I feel isn't John first of all doesn't deserve as much as I like the character. And it, it puts expectations and I just don't like it. I don't like it. Call this Superboy. That's what it is. It's a Superboy title, um, and because a lot of the ideas are cool, you know, uh, I, I I loved the whole interaction with John's friend Jay and Lois Lane. Uh, I thought that was fantastic. I liked the how how Bendix um, turned uh, what's her name Faultline turned oh. her into a weapon to use against. John, obviously, they, they know that Superman has just left Earth. They wait till he leaves, and then they weaponize Faultline. God only knows how they got her out of Star Labs or Superman had just dropped her off. So there, there's good here, but the problem is that the editorial dictates and, and the artificially aging up of John, which felt so forced, and now you're going to compound that by now forcing us to believe he's Superman? No, I'm not buying. Maybe in the context of 5G, it would have worked because it would have been everybody. You know, everybody would have got replaced in terms of the older heroes. And now we're looking at the new generation would have been a time jump. I mean, we don't know enough about what 5G would have been to say, but I, I feel like that would have fit better. But again, between what happened in Justice League, what happened in Action Comics, and now what we're getting in here in Superman, Son of Kal-El – it all just feels so forced. It's not organic at all. It's so clear that this is just 
editorial saying, shake things up for the sake of shaking them up. Like if you would have got here organically by telling an actual Superman story, yeah, I'd buy it. But when you, and again, I talked about this at the time, Bendis didn't want to write a Superman story where Superman was married and had a kid. So he just took them off the, the page by sending them out in the deep space. Then when he was ready, why well, don't I still don't really like I think I figured out who Lois Lane is, but I still don't run write a comic book about a little kid. So I'll just age him up to where I need him to be. Again, super forced, and now we're stuck here. And uh, yeah, I mean I know I sound like a broken record complaining about John <laughs> being aged up again, but look at what it's led to. Yeah, this this. It just feels so fake. It just doesn't feel. It doesn't feel like the DC universe, honestly. So, yeah. I, I want to like it because I'm a fan of Tom Taylor, but there's just too many things where I find myself shaking my head and going, "No, it doesn't feel authentic." I t like I I don't know why I'm supposed to care about this version of John Kent, because honestly, he just comes across as as insincere and a little bit of a baby constantly whining about my dad's never going to be back. My dad's never going to be back. Well, if you really truly believe that, if you, if you as Superman's son can't even believe in Superman, why should the rest of us, first of all, because <laughs> apparently even I believe in Superman more than you do, John Kent. And I know Superman's not real, but if you can't get beyond that, then Maybe you can just step up and go and accept it. Okay, I believe my dad's never coming back. Then actually step into the role of Superman, which he, he actually – I'll give Tom Taylor credit. He does have a few moments here and there where he he does step up, particularly in this issue where he gets himself arrested. Um, and it leads to some classic kind of Tom Taylor humorous moments. I did hard time in there, Dad. You were in there for 45 minutes. Yeah, it was 45 <laughs> minutes of hard time behind bars. Yeah, so I mean, there are things to like. This is still Tom Taylor; he's a good writer, um, but I just feel like he's being so handicapped by the the situation uh, that DC has put put him in with where Superman is at, um, and it's it's unfortunate. You know, Superman's my favorite character, and I can't remember the last time we got good Superman stories. It's kind of like the same thing with what uh, Marvel's doing with Hulk, and not not to say Immortal Hulk wasn't a good story, but at some point, you just want to return back to the status quo and just get some some good Hulk stories, right? But instead, we went from Immortal Hulk to now Donny Cates' Cosmic Hulk. We've gone from you know this this John Kent aged up Superman family nonsense we have now. Before this, we had Bendis. You know, it, it's been so long. It's been what five years since we've had some what I'll call quote unquote normal Superman stories in the actual Superman books. At some point, you you got to swing it back and give us some some normal stories, just to remind us of who Superman is. So, I don't know. I'll get off my soapbox now. Uh, <laughs> That's all right, it, man. It, just, it was so uh, it was so up. I want to like this. I want to like this yeah. title, but there's just I see so many problems with it. It's not speaking to me at all. Well, uh, just uh, it's funny because I I actually find myself. I think I'm just. I think I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, ahead of the curve, slightly ahead of you, in that I'm I'm slowly getting over my my trauma in terms of what they did to aging in aging up John Kent. 
once I, I I'm slowly uh, I sort of I feel like I'm going through the five stages of grief, uh, losing young John Kent, and I'm I'm finally still starting. I'm slowly getting to acceptance, just a little bit faster than you are. So, because I will say this, I actually think that Superman titles right now are I think Action Comics I think was is firing on all cylinders now. PKJ I I like War World, and I didn't mind this issue as uh, uh, I didn't mind this issue. I actually thought it was it's 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 okay now the fact of the matter is is that we may not like that it john kent is aged up and it, we know it wasn't organically developed but guess what he's aged up this is the reality in light of that tom taylor has to work with that and this is consistent with the other story superman is going off to war world and and his son he, he it's his dad and he's his dad he, he knows his dad might die and he and he knows he can't stop his dad, and he's he's very powerful. He's arguably more powerful than his dad, and his dad doesn't want his help, doesn't want him to come. His dad has given him the responsibility to stay on Earth, and that's what he's doing. But he doesn't have he doesn't feel he has a lot of agency yet. He's still trying to find his way, this John Kent. And in many ways, I think uh if I'm really cutting the character some slack here, not only do we the readers not really have a lot of faith in this young in this John Kent because he's and he's young he's younger than he looks because he was aged up but John Kent himself I think lacks a certain degree of confidence in himself and yet he's trying to find his way he's I mean he's being civilly disobedient he's breaking the law he's he is making decisions he's not afraid to rock the boat his father's given him the leeway to do that and he's he's already pissed off the wrong people as soon as his dad leaves President Henry Bendix of the island of Gomorrah drops fault line on the Ken farm and it looks like it completely blows up. So it looks like uh, the the SHIT has really hit the fan by the end of this year. He's really made an enemy of Henry Bendix. That's what young John Kent has done. And I think this has the makings of a good story here. This is, he's, John, you know, this is a real test of John Kent because he's got someone from another country is going to be utilizing and pushing the boundaries and he knows how to push the buttons of John Kent. And this is a young kid who probably he knows is trying to find his way. I think there's so much potential here to really get under the skin of John Kent and test this character. And I think that there's a little bit of uh, maybe even indirect breaking of the fourth wall insofar as I... I have some resentment of this character too, but it's, I, I feel a little bit bad if I'm going to be expecting that Tom Taylor to work a miracle here. I mean, look, he's, he was handed this character aged up and he's got to work with it. I actually don't mind this. I think the story is actually not bad. Uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, if the, if we'd call this, I, 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 I prefer I agree with you on one point. You made a good point that we should maybe call him Superboy. Calling him Superboy would be better. I actually think that's a good point that I almost think this is like the Jedi trials of a young of a young Padawan go through the Jedi trials and if you make it you're a Jedi. You know, it's like he's not a Jedi yet. John Kent, he's not a Jedi. He's not Superman. He's these are his trials. You know what I mean? Defeat Henry Bendix and a Jedi you will be or something to that effect. You know, let yeah, let him I agree. Yeah, let him let him earn let him earn the mantle as opposed to instead of just hand him the name son of Superman. Well, you know, you know, let him earn it. And so maybe this this should have been the trials of Superboy or give it a name or something like that. Uh in any event, but 
at the end of the day, those are, those are, I think, more issues of semantics. At the end of the day, does the story work for me? I'm actually entertained. I'm really curious to know what Henry Bendix has in mind. Henry Bendix just seems like a jerk. He thinks he can push this John Kent around. Let's see. He's testing John Kent here. I mean, he wants to wipe out the family farm, and it looks like he did. I'm really curious to see where this goes. So I'm not as quite as pessimistic as you are on this, uh, but uh, but we shall see. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I said as much that there are good aspects to the story. The problem is that the situation that DC put Tom Taylor in, that he, he has to address those elephants in the room. He has to talk about John Kent having that knowledge of his father dying. He has to talk about the fact, you know, it's that trauma. You know, that's really what we're talking about. Like, whatever it might be, whether it's knowledge of his father's death, whether it's him being aged up, being stuck in a volcano, tortured by a, a, a person with his father's face, whatever the trauma is, because DC decided to put this poor little kid through this trauma, it's got to be addressed. And it's getting in the way of Tom Taylor telling a good story. Because, like you said, the bones of the good story are there with Bendix, with his friend Jay, with like, like I love when he gets involved with the social causes, right? Because it's it's so authentic to John Kent's generation, and maybe a little bit rubbed off on his father, and that's why Superman went and took the Genesis fragment. Fragment. So yeah, <laughs> yeah there there are things to like here, but again, it just it bothers me that it has to be all mashed up with all the crap editorially. So maybe if it goes on long enough, that stuff can be left behind. Um, but I, I don't know. It, 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 I am, I'm curious. It's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. What, what happens after war world when Superman comes back, then, then what do we have two Superman? Good. Question. I don't know. Maybe it's all going to get worked out, uh, with the big infinite frontier crisis or whatever they're going to call it. That's coming next year. Could they possibly de-age John Kent? <laughs> And would there then be an outcry for the fans of John Kent that fall in love with him in this series that go, well, why'd you de-age him? He was so great at the older age, which again, it goes back to just, I think what a horrible call that is because now I, I think you can't win either, no matter what you do. If you leave them aged up, which I think that's probably what they'll do. You're always going to have people that lament the fact that we missed out on, on some great stories and some great, emotional development, father-son stories, family, Superman family stories. If you de-age him, you're going to have people that, you know, loved him, this social justice warrior version of John Kent that are going to lament that, well, why did you turn him into a little kid again? You know, you had already made all, created all this development for him. So I don't know. I mean, it's a lesson to all you publishers out there. <laughs> don't make these kind of decisions that, you've painted yourself into a corner and that you can't win no matter what you do. Yeah, no, I agree. You're going to piss off fans no matter what you do. So, uh, anyway, that is it for oh, the oh, books. I'm, I'm actually oh, curious. Ahead. I wonder what's, what's your pick of the week? My pick of the week. Ah, oh, that is a good question. You know what? It's actually, now that I stop and think about it, it's actually not that tough. I'm going to go with icon and rocket. Icon I thought that Rocket. was absolutely fantastic. It was relevant, had some great sort of political, relevant political uh, aspects to it. And uh, the art was fantastic, well-paced, 
Yeah, I'll go with Icon and Rocket. Yeah, I gotta I gotta go with that too. Uh, that was definitely uh, that was definitely my favorite. So we'll just move that up there. And uh, what's the worst? The worst. Ah, it's got to be checkmate. It's yeah, be checkmate. The fact, the fact that you have a good Justice League dark story uh, elevates Justice League. So, yeah, definitely checkmate. Yeah. What about you? What was uh? What well, was the worst? Uh, yeah, Icon and Rocket. Uh, I I really really liked. I I got to give honorable mention to uh, Action Comics and Batman v Bigby. I. I, I I really enjoyed that. The checkmate was definitely disappointing. Uh, I also gotta go for disappointment. I have to go with uh, uh, Justice League sixty eight was disappointing as well. Yeah, agreed. Uh, okay, anything you want to shout out for coverage? Again, I, I apologize, everybody. I I, I really want to get back to releasing more than three episodes a week, but. Uh, work continues to be the day job continues to be a bear. Uh, and then this last week I was traveling, um, for a funeral for death in the family. So I really haven't had time to, to read many comics, let alone make any extra content. So, uh, what about you, Rocky? Anything to shout out? Well, I, I still have a really busy day at work. I, I do have some, I am, I, I, Joshua Williamson just today uh, on the beat, he gave an interview on Justice League Incarnate, which is the second act following uh, Infinite Frontier, his Infinite Frontier series. Uh, Justice League Incarnate is act two, and it'll be followed by an act three. Uh, so I, I am, I do have thumbnails. I do want to give an overview of Infinite Frontier. Hopefully I'll get to it by the end of the week, but it's looking pretty busy at work. So I can't promise anything either, but uh, I'm just so glad I, that uh, I can review these DC comics with you every week and I can plan it because it's the, the most enjoyment I have reading comics. So thank you for that. Yeah. yeah, my pleasure. So don't forget everybody, if you're listening to us on the podcast, head over to YouTube, uh, subscribe to the Comic Boom channel. Be sure you give this episode a like and ring that notification bell so you know when Rocky puts out new content. Conversely, if you're watching us on YouTube and want to check out the other weekly episodes that we put out, uh, just go to your favorite podcast platform or app and do a search for the comic source. You can find us there and uh, subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. So uh, once again, Rocky and I appreciate the support. Thanks for joining us, everybody, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.